Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. I will be joining one of the guests in this episode, Misha Globerman, for a free online class about having difficult conversations in which you will be able to practice talking to people about their vaccine hesitancy. That will be on August 30th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. It's free, and you can check youarenotsosmart.com to sign up in advance or the description of this episode right there in your podcast playing app. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 213. After tweeting her frustration with people who, on their deathbed, still refuse to believe that they are dying from COVID-19, Jody Doring's tweets have gone viral. Doring, who has been a nurse for two decades, says if that's what it takes for all people in the state to start taking COVID-19 seriously, so be it. In a series of tweets on her one day off from work, Doring said, The ones that stick out are those who still don't believe the virus is real. These people really think this isn't going to happen to them. And then they stop yelling at you when they get intubated. It's like a effing horror movie that never ends. Yeah, the ones that I couldn't stop thinking about are the ones who think that it's not real. And they, their dying breaths are literally find out well, what's wrong with me. And when you say it's COVID and people say, no, that can't be it. in Woonsocket and points out the current South Dakota death toll of 644 is nearly the entire population of the town. That is like taking our entire town off the map. Every teacher, every banker, every kid that goes to school, gone. This is probably the worst thing we'll ever live through in our lifetime. Um, you know, and what's really hard, I don't even want to say it's frustrating, what's really hard is when people have very mild symptoms and then tell all their friends and neighbors that it's no big deal and that um, this is nothing. And then the next time you turn around, you have a 40 or 50 year old laying there who's not going to survive with the same virus. And there's 
absolutely nothing worse in my 22 career year career than doing a goodbye by FaceTime. That was a news report from South Dakota about a nurse who, like many frustrated healthcare workers, has begun sharing something that feels baffling to them. Deathbed denial that COVID is real and deathbed denial that vaccines are safe and could have prevented the very dying breath patients use to proclaim they still do not believe what doctors and scientists are telling them. Nurse Doring's story is not uncommon. There are many of these accounts circulating on social media and local news. People who have COVID, who are in the ICU, some of whom are dying, yet they still say they will never get vaccinated, that no one should get vaccinated. Here's some audio from a Vice News report inside an Arkansas hospital where a few such people in ICU, behind protective glass, sick, very sick but not yet intubated, agreed to be interviewed. Did you get the vaccine? No. Have you talked to the doctors and nurses here about the vaccine? I have, and yes, they're explaining, but you have to be open to hear, and I wasn't, and I'm more open to listen now. Why did you agree to be interviewed? I'm living something I didn't believe. I'm living it, and people need to know that it is real. It is real. People are dying. They are dying. Do you plan to get the vaccine after you get out of here? Not at this time. I've read all the bad stuff on it. I've not read any of the good because I didn't believe it. So I have to change my thinking and study. But don't you think that maybe being vaccinated could have prevented you from being here in the first place? Not at this time, I don't believe that. How are we going to get out of this if more people don't get vaccinated? I can't answer that. This is the fourth episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast focused on the psychology behind people's reactions to various aspects of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we aren't going to repeat everything from those shows. Instead, this episode is about talking to people who are, as we now say, vaccine hesitant. And like you, I'm frustrated. I have people in my life who I talk to, some of whom I have persuaded, some of whom I'm still working on. And hearing these stories seeing the anti-vaccine rallies, reading news about multiple radio hosts who were conspiratorial and anti-vaccine, but who are now dead from COVID, who, like these patients, refused to get vaccinated right up to the end, it makes me worry about my loved ones, friends, family, who might suffer the same fate while saying the same things. Now, I did use a technique we're going to talk about in this show to persuade some people in my life, and I really want to share that with you. In fact, I combined everything I learned writing a book about this to get into it right now. It seems vitally important. So this show, we will sit down with some of those people. Eight communication experts and one sociologist who, if you trust the vaccine, if you want someone in your life to get vaccinated, will share how to best talk to people who are still vaccine hesitant. But 
I do recommend you go back and listen to those earlier episodes. Episode 177 was about why people waited so long to take precautions. Episode 185 was about why people angrily refused to wear masks, which is all still true today. It also counts as explanation for what's going on with the vaccine in a lot of cases. And episode 189 was about what might happen when the vaccine arrives, which came out a year ago. And 100% of what was predicted in that episode is what happened. I promise I'm about to begin the show, but I want to make some things clear because I don't want to be misunderstood. This show is not about condescending people. We endeavor in this episode, all the guests, myself included, to not consider people who disagree with you merely uninformed and to genuinely thoughtfully address other people's actual concerns when you do disagree on something. But this show is about persuasion. It's about getting help having conversations with unvaccinated people with the intention of nudging them toward vaccination and away from hesitancy. So as content, it's not intended to actually persuade unvaccinated people on its own. It's for people to learn about how to do that in conversation. Also, that being said, the you and you are not so smart is me and you and everyone. The foundational idea of you are not so smart is that we are all unaware of how unaware we are, which makes each of us the unreliable narrator in the story of our lives. And that is to say, both the vaccine hesitant and those who are not vaccine hesitant likely don't know for sure the antecedents for their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors on this matter. But we feel subjectively quite confident that we do know those things. And I say this here because you might be vaccine hesitant. And in this episode, we will often refer to the fact that vaccine hesitancy in the United States typically falls along the political divide. And we've covered that in previous episodes, and there's plenty of research to support this. Political signaling is the dominant motivation right now in the United States. But there are many other motivations outside of that. You, listening, may be vaccine hesitant for completely different reasons. But since that's the majority of the hesitancy that's where the advice will mostly be directed in the first hour, not so much in the second. But if you're interested in the other reasons, if you wish they would be addressed, we did that in episode 189. At the end of that episode, we talked to an epidemiologist who outlines why left-leaning people are often hesitant to take vaccines, and people who just don't consider themselves political. They all share the same sort of motivations behind it, at least in the aggregate, and that hesitancy is very similar to the hesitancy we see behind the COVID vaccine when it's not politically motivated. As always, all aspects of psychology explored on You're Not So Smart are universal. The you includes me and everyone else with a standard issue brain. So building off those episodes, we're going to talk about the best methods for attempting to persuade the vaccine hesitant. Any discussion about the safety and efficacy of vaccines can seem like a debate about facts, because if you aren't hesitant and you trust the consensus of scientists and doctors and other experts, it will feel subjectively like this is a fact-based issue because it seems that way to you. And if you are hesitant, well, it feels the same way on the other side. But on either side, the most influential factor on your reasoning is most likely your reputation and your identity and your sense of self within your reference group. That's the true reason, even if you don't know it. In other words, it's social. 
And here's sociologist Brooke Harrington explaining that. I think you could boil a lot of this, what we're seeing in the pandemic, down to a very simple equation. It's like the E equals MC squared of social life under the pandemic. And that equation is social death is greater than physical death as, as a source of fear. Social death is greater than physical death. That is, the drive that leads to the motivation that motivates this sort of cognition and emotion and eventually behavior is one of our strongest drives. And it's the one that generates shame and embarrassment. It's the one that causes us to fear ostracism. Evolution via group selection made us ultra-social primates motivated by shame and ostracism to avoid social death more strongly than physical death. So, if in your efforts to persuade someone of literally anything, you cause them to feel shame or the threat of ostracism, or they begin to feel as though you are part of them and not us, or they begin to feel like you see them as part of them and not your us, you will fail. Because, you know, you're a human being, you see another human being, you want to connect with them somehow. But there's simultaneously a, a person in society logic, a social logic going on there. Mm-hmm. So that your effort to connect with the person may actually um, backfire in the sense that, for example, if, if you're trying to say, I understand you, or um, I, I just want you to live, you know, please get vaccinated, please wear a mask, I just want you to live. What they may be reading that as is, oh, this person who is not a part of my reference group thinks it would be a good idea for me to get vaccinated or to wear a mask. I cannot do something that they approve of because that will cost me my membership in my, say, right-wing partisan Mm -hmm. reference group. And that membership is so much more important to me. I think what's struck me most about the social dynamics of this pandemic is how readily people have thrown away their family ties. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen this with QAnon too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These family is blood is supposed to be thicker than water. Mm-hmm. And yet when push comes to shove and people feel that they have to choose between being remaining a member in good standing of club QAnon versus remaining a member in good standing of their family, they're like, Oh, this isn't even hard. See a wifey or kids or mom and dad. Basically, what it comes down to is who we trust. Like, I trust um, the New England Journal of Medicine, and I trust the New York Times, basically, and I trust the WHO, basically. I trust the consensus, you know, to the degree to which there is something that we can call the consensus of mainstream scientists. I I trust those people. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a leap. That's negotiation and communication and talking to people about things expert, Misha Globerman. And I really do think it's a leap. Like the thing I always think is a sort of thought experiment to try to generate some sort of empathy for the. And the other thing, I guess, too, is when you actually talk about the actual motivations, our motivations are the same. I mean, you know, these people, you know, people who disagree are also, you know, I'm scared. They're scared. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to keep my body safe. They want to keep their body safe. Um, I want to listen to people I would trust. They want to listen to people they trust. I want to, I want, I am, I'm also like, whether I admit it or not, I want to seem like a good member of a social group that I'm in. They want to seem like a good member of social. I mean, we have the identical motivations. The main difference is just who they trust. And for me, I, I don't think it's, 
I don't think it's so mysterious why they, you know, that you wouldn't like, we think, well, you know, you got to trust scientists. They know, but I'm like, I don't know. Like the thought experiment I always think is like, I don't know if I lived in like Soviet Russia mm. and there was like, you know, scientists came out with some report and it was backed by scientists. And it happened to also support something that I thought was the kind of thing the government wanted to do that I didn't think was such a great idea. I might not trust that. And people yeah. would be like, oh, you know, but Misha, I, I give myself a Russian name in this story, Misha. They're like, but Misha, <laughs> the scientists are scientists. They are the people who made Sputnik. You know, they are, you must trust them. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, they're all on the Soviet government payroll and they're all, this seems to support, like, I'm not sure I would believe them. And, and I think that would be a reasonable stance to take. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people, that's sort of how they see the world. And I don't, and again, I don't think that's insane. Like if someone were to say to me, Misha, here's a report from a bunch of scientists, but I should tell you, all of those scientists are like, right-leaning Christian Republicans. I'd be like, I don't know if I believe that. Mm -hmm. Well, when you go to a right-leaning Christian Republican and say, here's a report on climate change, by the way, everybody who wrote it is a left-leaning atheist Democrat. They might be like, yeah, so a bunch of people who really aren't like me came to this conclusion, which seems to support a bunch of policies that I'm really opposed to. Like, mm -hmm. huh. So I don't know. It's not really hard for me to make the leap. And again, I, I say this as someone who I'm 100,000% behind the vaccine. It's not hard for me to make the leap to what it might be like to be Someone who's a lot like me who doesn't. I always, I try, I try to always think of metaphors to help get this across, and and, and this may be a shitty one, but I, I think it's like um, when people are trying to say to survive a sinking ship, and they have a child with them, like they'll put the child. If there's one, if there's one seat on the lifeboat, they'll put the child in the lifeboat, and they'll go down with the ship. It seems to me like uh, your your social self is the child you put on the lifeboat if there's only one seat, and your actual physical self is the one you'll allow to die. Uh, and so the solution here, if you're trying to reach someone, is you have to put a new, you have to free up a space on the lifeboat somehow for the uh, for their social self, or you have to assure them in some way the child that child is going to live, so they have permission now to save themselves. They need permission to save themselves because their child's life is more important. And similarly, your social self is more important than your physical self. You need permission to save your physical self. Uh, and to yeah. do that, you have to assure that their social self will survive. And that's what cult leaders like Jim Jones withheld that permission. So given these hurdles, given that this often boils down to trust and that you are up against an ancient primal drive, which leads to motivated reasoning, how do you talk to people who are vaccine hesitant because of these drives? And if it's not this, if there's some other reason in there that's leading to this hesitancy, how do you find that reason? And given all of this, how do you talk to people who are vaccine hesitant in such a way that you can persuade them to get vaccinated. Well, that is what we're talking about in this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. And the answers to all of those things are after this break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event, and 
was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing. Measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's, here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything and you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. 
one efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McRaney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And before we get into persuasion, given that this episode is nearly three hours long, I thought that some of you probably just want some actionable steps right now, up front in the show. And for those of you that want that, here they are. It's going to take about 10 minutes to go through this, and it is an overview. So if it seems like a fire hose of info, don't worry. After this overview, we will go through each of these things in detail. The first step, which I like to call step zero, is just ask yourself, why are you so sure that the vaccine is safe and effective? Ask yourself who you trust and why, and admit to yourself that you are likely not an expert on this topic and that you are basing your attitudes and your beliefs on experts that you trust. Explore for yourself why it is that you harbor that trust, which leads to all the rest. Then next, in the conversation, make it your number one priority to curate the conversation in a way that strengthens the relationship between you and the other person. And every second, Work to demonstrate to the other person that you are not an other, that you are not a member of what they consider them. At the same time, do the same thing within yourself. Try your best to not see them as another and not to frame them within the category of the big them. Then, as you open the dialogue, assure the other party you aren't out to shame them or put them in a position to be ostracized by their peers. Demonstrate your openness and respect and continuously ask for their consent as you move through the conversation. Once you've done all that, ask them how motivated they are to get vaccinated on a scale from 1 to 10, and whatever they answer, if it's not a 1, ask them why they didn't pick a lower number. When you do that, you're getting the person to talk to you about the positive attitudes they have toward the vaccine instead of the negatives. You're getting them to talk about the things that are pushing them more toward it than away. But if they do answer one, then that person is in what psychologists call the pre-contemplation stage, which we'll explain later, along with everything else I've already said. But now, just know that pre-contemplation means they are not in a state of mind in which they are open to active learning. This means you can't move on to the persuasion attempt. 
doesn't matter which persuasion attempt you're going to use, it's not time for that. First, you must move them into a state of active learning, out of the pre-contemplation stage and into contemplation. And everything I've mentioned so far, that might be enough. And according to research focused on helping people change their behaviors to escape addiction, if they're not, if they're not in that contemplation stage yet, the four most common reasons a person is not yet ready to enter the contemplation stage are, one, they haven't been confronted with information that challenges their motivations, not enough yet. Two, they currently feel their agency is being threatened. Three, previous experiences have made them feel hopeless to change. And four, they may be stuck in a rationalization loop. In previous episodes, we've called this a conspiratorial loop. Same thing. You just get stuck in every rationalization and justification keeps you from escaping a loop of reasoning that prevents you from changing. Now, all of this could be happening at the same time, but the work into developing therapeutic techniques over the decades to help people escape alcoholism and addictive substances pretty much focuses on these four ideas. And all of that work is about helping people change their intention to behave in one way or another. And it all applies to helping people change their intentions to vaccinate as well. So at this stage, you must determine what it is that's keeping the other person from leaving pre-contemplation. For some, you'll need to expose them to new and challenging ideas. For others, you need to assure them their agency isn't under threat. For others, it means providing new experiences that challenge their preconceived notions. And for others, it means exploring their reasoning exposing it to them so they can escape the rationalization loop. We will discuss all of that later, and I'll introduce you to people who focus on that last step at the end of the show, something called street epistemology. So it's also possible a person is experiencing all of these, but usually it's one that's really the sticking point. And once a person is out of that stage, and maybe your first few conversations are just getting a person out of that stage, but once they are, they will answer two or higher. When you ask them on a scale of one to 10, what is your motivation to vaccinate right now? So if they answer two or higher, you can consider them ambivalent. That is their attitude, the valenced positive or negative feelings they carry about vaccination is now ambivalent. It is somewhat negative, somewhat positive. They have both negative and positive feelings about it. And once a person is ambivalent, or if they already are, you'll need to use a form of what psychologists call technique rebuttal. And there are many forms of technique rebuttal. It just means focusing on a person's reasoning instead of the facts, instead of figures and propositions and conclusions and YouTube videos and so on. Anything they're putting forth is justification. If you battle them with the same kind of stuff, you lose. Now, there's another form of debate that's called topic rebuttal. That's for good faith environments where everyone's on the same page and agreeing to the same rules and they're holding to the same norms. That's for academia, science, medicine. You can talk about facts and evidence in those environments. This is not going to be one of those kind of environments. You're going to need technique rebuttal. The Socratic method is a form of technique rebuttal, but there are many others, some of which like deep canvassing and cognitive behavioral therapy we've covered in the show but in this episode, we're going to look at two of them in detail. That's motivational interviewing and street epistemology, which each share some ideas between each other. Both of these 
use something that lots of research has shown to be crucial in this whole form of persuasion. It's called non-judgmental empathetic listening. And without it, you're not going to get anywhere. It's not the only thing. You can't just non-judgmentally listen to someone and change their minds, but you must non-judgmentally listen to someone if you wish to change their minds. Also, in motivational interviewing and street epistemology, changing the person's mind is not the goal. If you make that the goal, if you make that sort of the uh, make or break of this whole thing, you're not going to be successful. The point of these techniques is to help the other person explore their own thinking on the matter and then discover their true reasons for being hesitant. And if done well, the other person will, on their own, without your corrections or influence, strengthen within themselves plausible reasons and acceptable justifications for changing their attitudes while, at the same time, diminishing their confidence and reasons for not changing them. But it's very important here to note, I'm going to give you some steps. When you're exploring that, as you recognize reasons for them to take the other side of the thing, for them to move into the other direction, that's what you need to repeat most. If you keep repeating their reasons for not believing something, you run the risk of strengthening their resolve. So avoid that. So we'll get to all of this in detail as we move forward. I will give you the steps right now in street epistemology if you want to just stop here and see if you can do this without any more information, but I don't suggest you do that. I suggest you listen to the entire show, even if it takes you a couple days to get through it. Also, remember, what's really useful about street epistemology in this particular framework is that it helps bounce a person out of that conspiratorial logic loop or that rationalization loop. It's very powerful at doing that very specific thing. And if you do that, you move a person into ambivalence and you can use a mix of street epistemology and hardcore motivational interviewing after that. So here are the steps. Step one, build rapport with the other person. And this is what we were talking about earlier. You need to make sure that this is a safe space and that both people feel that way before you move forward. Number two, you want to identify the claim, the proposition, the topic that we're talking about. You want a specific claim to be put forth by the other person. It needs to be something as specific as they can conjure. And then you need to confirm that you understand what they're saying. Confirm that claim. Let them know that you understand them. Say things like, do I understand you correctly? You're saying this. Then the next step, clarify any terms or definitions that are being put out. Sometimes people are saying things, they're using terms like politics or vaccine or DNA or something, and they're meaning something different from what you think that word means. You need to clarify that before you move to the next step, which is identify their confidence level. This is mostly done by saying, like I said earlier, from a scale from one to 10, where are you on this? After that, you identify what method they're using to arrive at that confidence. And then you ask questions that will reveal whether or not they're using a method that reliably arrives at that level of confidence. You ask them for what justifications they're using to arrive at that level of confidence. And you listen, you summarize, you reflect, you question, and you do this over and over again in the last stage until you feel like the conversations reach a place where you can step away because it usually would take two or three, sometimes more. In this case, maybe lots. Again, this is something that's very important in any discussion of changing someone's mind. 
First of all, that phrase, change your mind, it's difficult to define it. So you need to know, are we talking about beliefs, attitudes, values, that sort of thing? And once you know what you're talking about, it counts as changing your mind if your confidence goes up or down at all. It counts as changing your mind if your attitude shifts at all toward positive or negative. It counts as changing your mind if a value starts to move up or down the hierarchy. Any amount of change counts as change. So don't make a 100% sort of flip 180 thing be your goal or, again, you'll become frustrated. And your frustration is often the thing that ruins any persuasive attempt. Okay, we're getting way out ahead of ourselves by going into all of this. So let's rewind back to the first principle. Before we get into the persuasion techniques themselves, I wanted to first go through a step in having conversations with people about controversial topics that, if skipped, if avoided, if done poorly, will make any attempt at persuasion almost certainly fail. And that is setting up the conversation itself as a collaboration instead of a debate. And to discuss why and how to do that, I sat down with sociologist Brooke Harrington and communications expert Misha Globerman. My name is Brooke Harrington, and I'm a professor of sociology at Dartmouth. Ordinarily, my my specialty is um, offshore finance and how some elite professionals all over the world help ultra-rich people hide their assets from the law, from taxes, from inheritance laws, from banks who want their money back, that sort of thing. I'm, I'm Misha Globerman. I, uh, my job is I help people have important conversations. I work with uh, individuals and with organizations. I help, uh, I help them be better at talking about the things that most matter to them. I do that in a lot of ways. I do coaching and consulting, training, but a lot of my work's around helping people talk about difficult issues, have, have hard conversations. You could undermine the cause of getting right-wing partisans to get vaccinated or wear masks by signaling your approval of that because then you'd be sort of tainting the meaning of their actions. It's really important that they not be perceived as traitors to their group. And in some ways, having any indication of approval from a, someone regarded as a, a liberal or a left-winger would be a sign to them that they're doing something wrong. Yeah, I mean, but some of that translates into something that people can think and can say out loud, right? That people can say, for instance, you know, I'd rather die doing the right thing than stay alive. And a lot of what doing the right thing translates into is there's a pretty strong correlation between doing the right thing and doing the thing that would generate approval within my social group or avoiding the thing that would generate disapproval within my social group, right? So like the people who are saying like, the people who are on their deathbed saying, I'm glad I didn't get that shot. What they're not thinking is I'm a conformist. What they are thinking is I'm a principled moral person. Because now the, the, the conformity comes in in the formation of the principles of morality, right? But they're still... Yeah, it's it's give me liberty or give me death, right? So that yeah. that's that's the uh, yeah. And those guys ran with a, with a crowd that really cared a lot about liberty. That's exactly right. <laughs> it's like we celebrate it there. We're not like oh, what a conformist jerk, you know? Like we're you know. We will return to Misha's insights in a moment, but first, sociologist Brooke Harrington made a very important point in our conversation about how the research into con artists can be very useful in understanding how not to start a conversation with someone who is vaccine hesitant. And here she is talking about that research. Um, some classic research from almost 70 years ago by a fellow named Irving Goffman, who was one of the, the founding fathers of my field. And he wrote a, a short but legendary article about con artists. And 
the mystery of why people who've been defrauded by con artists don't usually go to the police or other authorities to report what's happened to them. And it's because of how it would make them look to say, I've been conned, I've been defrauded. It's easier for them to play along or, or to be, to be cooled out by special, um, special helpers that fraudsters employ uh, to, to help the individual who discovers what's happened to him um, come to terms with, with his fate as a, a mark, as they say in the con artist business. Um, and, and to reconcile themselves to the fact that they've been had. That's a very difficult thing for people to do. And in fact, for, Goffman calls it social death because you lose a part of yourself, the part of yourself that thought you were smart. Goffman writes about like the, you were talking about this, the operator. If you could tell us what these things are, there's an operator, a mark and a cooler. What are these three things? And uh, why was Irving Goffman, a sociologist in the fifties studying this sort of thing? Goffman saw the world in almost like a, like all the worlds of play. And he said, well, there's a backstage and a front stage. And there are roles that we can identify that people play, but just as in a, a play in real life, the actors, the roles are responsive to one another. You can't just pull Hamlet out of Hamlet and say, well, there's, there's this guy giving soliloquies. It's like Hamlet only makes sense in a context of interacting with other actors. And, and so Goffman is like, okay, let's take this idea seriously. Let's try and identify the key players in, in the drama we call the con. And he said, it, the minimum, the minimum um, casting of a drama like that requires three people. One is the operator. That's, that's the person we would ordinarily call the con artist. The other is the mark. Of course, somebody has to be conned. And third is this person we don't really talk about very much in everyday life, but who turns out to be super important in managing the, the complex social dynamics of con artists, which is the cooler. And the cooler is someone who's in league with the operator. The cooler exists to deflect and diffuse the anger that marks feel when they realize they've been conned. Because potentially that's really dangerous to the con artist. The con artist doesn't want to be exposed. They don't want someone to like go postal on them and like murder them, for example, uh, after the con is discovered. So the cooler is the person who, who talks the defrauded person, the mark, off the ledge and, and helps them deal with the, the psychological crisis that's induced by realizing you've been conned. As I said, you lose a part of yourself. You aren't just robbed of your money. You're robbed of your sense of your, your identity as a smart person. And then what do you do? The cooler is there to make sure that the mark doesn't get so angry that they blow up the con or hurt the con artist. It feels to me like a lot of the advice that we're getting for people who we were trying to reach who are unvaccinated um, is that we're being anti-coolers, right? Like it feels like we're doing the opposite of what a cooler would do. We're not helping ease their social shame. We're inflaming the social shame, which is driving them more toward the behavior we're trying to pull them away from. Am I thinking in the right way here? Yeah, that's a really astute point. And that, that was what I was trying to get at by saying, you're a human being, you see another human being, you want to connect with them somehow. But there's simultaneously a, a person in society 
logic, a social logic going on there. So that your effort to connect with the person may actually backfire in the sense that, for example, if, if you're trying to say, I understand you, or um, I, I just want you to live, you know, please get vaccinated, please wear a mask, I just want you to live. What they may be reading that as is, oh, this person who is not a part of my reference group thinks it would be a good idea for me to get vaccinated or to wear a mask. I cannot do something that they approve of because that will cost me my membership in my, say, right-wing partisan mm-hmm. reference group. And mm-hmm. that membership is so much more important to me. Uh, okay. One of the things I want to ask you about is, as a scientist who studies this, like I feel like this isn't as astonishing as it is to the layperson. Why does this feel... Do you think, well, I mean, I just want your opinion on this. Why does this feel to most people who aren't familiar with the science behind this? Why does this feel absolutely insane? <laughs> like if this is how people work and this is also how I work, how you work, how we all work, how we've always worked since we like, you know, started forming societies and, and complex civilizations, this is how people work. Why does this seem so absolutely astonishing? And why is it so, seem so counterintuitive? And why are we so bad at navigating it if this is how people work? I think you you alluded earlier in our conversation to the idea of individualist versus collectivist societies. I think maybe in societies where people are are raised from early childhood to understand that they're part of a group, um, this wouldn't be so mysterious. But especially in, in cultures where America is a very extreme example of an individualist culture. And so whenever anything happens to people, we, we're told to think of it in individual terms. Like if anything bad ever happens to you, it's your fault. But if anything good happens to you, it's to your credit. So when people sort of walk down the street in my hometown of Chicago and they see someone who's homeless, oftentimes they'll be like an off the cuff remark, like get a job. Or when those same people might see someone being brutalized by the police just comply. Like for every given problem, there's an individual solution. Um, and asking them to think about, well, wait a second, what if it's not just this individual's actions that have led them to this place? What if there's a more systemic problem or an interpersonal problem that you might never experience because you're a different gender or a different race or a different class mm-hmm. um, or a different religion? That's really hard for people to understand in America. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's quite as difficult for people to understand in cultures that are somewhat more collectivist. So back to the, the question of like social death being greater than physical death as a source of fear. Remember that in, in some cultures, like in, in Japan, people have committed seppuku for centuries, as far as I know as a way to avoid shame Mm. because shame is social death and that is worse than losing your life. Think of all the people we've watched over decades, uh, strap on uh, bomb vests and become suicide bombers on the premise that, well, maybe their family gets some reward if they do that, but also that it would be shameful for them to refuse the chance to be a martyr for their cause. And I think as, as long as Americans could view that sort of behavior as like over there or like 
something done by exotic people that we look at like animals in a zoo, there didn't have to be any further thought to like, oh, we're human beings just like them. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we do anything that might be like that. Well, you know, and, and I think about war and wartime and uh, their families are torn by war. Families can be on different sides of the battlefield, different sides of the politics going into a war. I, I did an episode about the Jonestown massacre uh, a while back. And the thing that, that I could just couldn't get over was how it was um, the, uh, the, there was like this algorithm that's being run where you're, you're trying, your behavior is driven by, for those, for those whose behavior was driven by this, the beh- driven by a, a desire to look like a good, like seem like a good member of the group, even though that behavior will end the group itself. Uh, it's, it's such a baser level algorithm being run or however you want to frame it that, that it doesn't really take into account the, the, the larger picture. Um, that's how deep it is. Um, some parts of me are, are totally terrified by this. Let me, I want to get to what do you think we ought to do about this in a second? Because I want to talk about reference groups because there's there's something you, you mentioned that I love this line. It should, come, uh, it should come as a relief to those weary of being nice to vaccine holdouts. These are your words, by the way. Blue, st- blue staters approval probably never mattered to them in the first place. Okay. Hold that thought. You open one of your pieces, and this is something that I have shared with so many people. In Missouri, uh, there this hospital put out these like this, this, uh, these videos showing that there are a lot of, there are some people who patients, when they come in to get vaccinated, they, they want an assurance that they, nobody would be told in their community that they got vaccinated, that it must remain secret. And there are even some places that have gone so far as to create sort of like, um, almost like, uh, secret locations you can go to and get vaccinated where you, where you can go. It's like, I don't know what, it, I don't remember what it was, but something I can imagine it's something like, uh, I'm going here to, to, uh, you know, to buy toothpaste and you slip in there and you get vaccinated and you slip out and nobody knows what happened. Help us understand why people would even do something like that. And then, uh, we can, uh, bounce off of that into the, uh, they don't care about your approval. They care about something else. That's all related to reference groups. Please t- tell us something. You know, I actually went and I checked this out. in in the state where I live, which is New Hampshire, which is a very conservative state. And there's actually a bunch of people who've been picketing outside the hospital, the major hospital in this region for days with big signs that say, you know, my body, my choice, no to forced vaccination. I, I also went and I checked at one of the local grocery chains here, which has a pharmacy. And indeed you can get a vaccine with no questions asked in a private room. They basically take you into a room that has, uh, the, the window has been papered over and you can go in and, and quietly get vaccinated without anyone telling, without, you know, without showing ID or insurance or anything. Mm-hmm. Why would people do this? Not just in uh, maybe Mississippi, but up here in Rock Ridge, New England. Because social death is greater than physical death. But people aren't stupid. And this this is the thing that I, I would like listeners to really understand. Just because vaccine refusers and mask rioters won't listen to you or won't listen to the experts you think are worth listening to does not mean they're unreachable by anybody, first of all. And just because their behavior might seem Uh, stupid or irrational in the sense that they're putting their own lives at risk. And and those are the people they supposedly value, like their family members. That doesn't mean there is no logic to it. 
It's just a rationality that is more social than individual. So to go back to something I mentioned before about um, differences between people who self-identify as conservative and self-identify as liberal, it doesn't mean we're not all human beings. We, we have more alike than we have um, differences between us. However, people who tend to identify themselves as conservative usually also place a lot more value on things like loyalty and obedience and hierarchy mm-hmm. and group belonging. So the, the meaning of violating a group norm, like getting vaccinated and acknowledging the pandemic is really serious, it really is deadly, even though people in your partisan group may have said that it isn't, that can come not only with a bad feeling like, oh, I've been a traitor to the group, but it can be punished with very real sanctions. Mm-hmm. Like people feel that they'll, they'll be kicked out of their churches. Maybe their spouse will divorce them. Um, maybe their kids will disown them. Maybe they might lose their job. If they work for a, a rabid anti-vaxxer and their boss finds out that they've been vaccinated, there goes their livelihood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some like 40% of Americans couldn't cover a $400 emergency in a pinch. So a lot of people don't have the luxury of like finding, you know, uh, effing around and finding out. At the same time, they're like, oh, I don't want to die. So what do you do? You put on a disguise, you get vaccinated in secret. Problem solved. And nobody knows. Problem is you can't do that with a mask. Masks are visible. Unlike vaccines, you literally lose face. So I people are going to be much more violent and, and much more um, much more intense in basically fighting what they perceive as imposed social death mm-hmm. by virtue of being made to wear masks. For anyone listening who is like hoping that there's something that they could do or there is something they should at least think or feel when it related to all this, what, what opportunities, I mean, what do you have to say about when it comes to talking to unvaccinated people? It won't be the same thing for everyone. There's no one size fits all. But if, if I were to strategize it, I would say, okay, if you have say a target individual that you really want to persuade to get vaccinated or take some sort of COVID mitigation measures, figure out first, what are the reference groups to which this person belongs? And what's like the rank ordering of importance or priority of those reference groups to that target person? Um, is the most important group in that person's life their church? Is it their job? Um, is it some group of online people they've never even met in real life? Um, the hardest thing to do in this process, I think, is not to judge them and not, not, to, not to fall into the, the despair and the anger that you described, which is completely legitimate and completely valid. Um, because you know, part of what you're feeling and part of what I'm feeling is, oh my God, these people are putting my life at risk. And I really wish they would stop. And it's very difficult to control those feelings when you feel that your life is threatened. Nonetheless, if it's, if it's possible, not for moral reasons, but for pragmatic reasons, to sort of put that fear of your own death and, and the risk that you're running to one side and say, okay, what is important 
to this person? Which groups are most important in their lives? And then once you establish that, try to figure out if there's anyone in those groups who might be leaning or, or toying with the idea of supporting vaccination or supporting masking. Um, and then possibly offer to support those people in their doubts, maybe from behind the scenes, because you can really screw things up if you're seen publicly to support those potential coolers. Um, it's easier to do online in some ways. Like if you were to just go onto Facebook and find some anti-vax groups or some anti-masking groups, um, and you just observed their, their conversations, or maybe you could do the same on Reddit. You could observe their conversations and over time you might be able to identify some people who are openly having doubts about the wisdom of refusing vaccines or masking. And then you could direct message them privately and say, hi, you don't know me, but I really respect the, um, your courage and your integrity in raising these doubts even if no one else agrees with you. And then maybe if, if they don't know you in person, maybe they won't be asking questions like, uh, oh, hey, I just saw you down at that uh, ACLU meeting, so I know you're some liberal lefty commie, so I don't, I don't want your approval, go away. You can, you can do better on the internet in some ways. Um, if, you, if you don't think that it's safe or reasonable to try and reach out to potential coolers in these partisan groups that resist vaccination or masking. Another thing you can do is just follow the news of right-wing partisan leaders who have done so. Like it's, it's really significant that in late July, um, governors Kay Ivey of Alabama, Ron DeSantis of Florida, um, and at least one other, oh, gubernatorial candidate Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas, all came out more or less simultaneously and said, everyone should get vaccinated. Now, this is kind of a no-lose proposition for these folks because, again, vaccination is invisible. You don't wear the mark of shame like the mask. No loss of face. But as, as soon as those three things came out, and when Steve Scalise of Louisiana got vaccinated on camera, just to really drive the point home, vaccination rates in those states shot up. I think they doubled in Louisiana within the week to 10 days after that. These coolers matter a lot. So maybe your target person, the person you care about who isn't vaccinated or won't mask, maybe they don't know about this. Maybe they need to see the, the video of Steve Scalise getting himself vaccinated on camera. Maybe they need to know about Kay Ivey saying, you know, the real problem with this pandemic is the unvaccinated. Just, you know, slide that over to them. <laughs> Real casual, like, if you want to try to go person to person with this individual who hasn't been vaccinated or won't wear a mask, um, one of the, the tried and true ways to approach them is, is by putting new wine in old bottles. That is, try to couch what you want them to do in terms of consistency with their existing commitments. Um, so remember, we live in a country where every school child can recite the words, give me liberty or give me death, right? So that is uh, the colonial American version of social death, 
is a thing more to be feared than physical death. Right now, the new wine that's been put into old bottles is they're refusing vaccination on the grounds of personal liberty. They're saying, my body, my choice. They actually adopted the rhetoric of, um, of the pro-choice movement. So a skillful rhetorician would say, okay, how, do you, how can it be couched as an expression of liberty to get vaccinated? And one way people have tried this, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders did this in her, um, in her op-ed last month, was she kept labeling the shot the Trump vaccine. So if, if you call it the Trump vaccine, then Trump is associated with this, these very loud flamboyant declarations of uh, liberty and America first, which also are expressions of, you know, we will never be shamed by putting America second, et cetera, et cetera. Another thing to keep in mind, and you mentioned this uh, about your, your own impulse to try to dazzle vaccine refusers or, or mask resistors with your, with your glittering rhetoric. <laughs> and I would say, well, you can still do that. It's just a matter of what, what rhetorical approach you take. As, as you probably know, Aristotle wrote the book literally on rhetoric. And he said there are basically three ways to approach people rhetorically. One is through logic. You know, give them the facts. You're going to die if you don't get vaccinated or your odds of death are X if you don't get vaccinated. That's a logical approach, but that wasn't the only rhetorical approach. The others were um, ethos, which is uh, the appeal of morality. Like it's the right thing to do. And lastly, it was pathos. Now we know the word pathos in modern English as like, you know, something that's schmaltzy and sad. But what he meant is you appeal emotionally. And one of the things Aristotle said in, in the rhetoric was, if you really want to hotwire people's brains and get them to take action, you go for the pathos rhetorically. It's the quick and dirty, often uh, misused way of persuading people because you can short circuit their ability to think critically. Now, of course, I'm massively paraphrasing and blending Aristotle with a lot of basically modern neuroscience. But... That was, that was what he observed, is that you could get people to do the craziest stuff if you could plug in rhetorically to their emotions. So if you want to approach people with your dazzling rhetoric, you're, you have to understand that this is a socio-emotional problem. So you can muster all the facts in the world, they're not going to matter. You have to understand the particular emotions that they're afraid of, and they're, they're not the fear of death. They're the fear of social death, which is a different thing. And that has to do with the reference groups they belong to. So you, your task is to dazzle them rhetorically with an argument that allows them to save their physical lives, which they do want to do. They're not insane, but they also have to save their social lives. They have to save face. So figure out a way to rhetorically package that so that they get both and it's not either or.
two, I guess the two things I want to know most from you is what should we not be doing in these conversations? And another is then, uh, which I feel like that may be even more important than the second thing, which is what are the better ways to discuss topics like this? And I'll just see what you have to say so far and we'll bounce around. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, one thing that's been astounding to me is just how much this is what everyone's thinking about. Like I'm just recently, you know, we're in the pandemic. I've been running lots of online workshops recently. And it's like, it's, it's like, I've, everyone wants to talk. It's, it's wild how big of an issue is. I've never seen anything like this. Like, like, it's just like everybody's like, I'm like, what do you want to talk about? And like in every single workshop, there's people who are like, oh, I have vaccine hesitant loved ones. I have people in my life. And just like the degree to which that's like a enormous and universal problem now is kind of remarkable. Yeah. I mean, in terms of what to do and what not to do and all that, I mean, you named a bunch of things. I mean, one of the things you talked about was that you know, that word hesitancy is a really funny catch-all word because in some cases it really describes people who are just literally hesitant. They're like, I kind of want to do this, but I'm hesitant. Like I'm, I'm into it, but I'm a little scared. I'm nervous about it. It doesn't feel safe. I, I, I'm kind of on the fence. Like they're hesitant. And then there are people who are, you know, all the way on the other end, there's like, you know, or even more, it's just like, yeah, I kind of want to, but I haven't gotten around to it. The clinic's too far. Like there's a really wide range, right? From that all the way to the other end where it's like, you know, my core identity is to protest this because I think it's a government conspiracy, you know, and all those things are going to take different approaches and also different relationships are going to take different approaches too. So I think like one of the things that I know you were talking that you were, that you were saying earlier was you were like, what, you know, how can we make this conversation go better? And I think one of the first questions for me is to really think about what go better means for you hmm. like, is to think about, and maybe part of it is like, you know, if it's been going badly, what do you mean? Like, like what are, what are the things because of which you said it went badly and, and what would you want to change? And I think for a lot of people, like just thinking about that a little bit, especially when the conversations are with loved ones, with people who are close to you, there's kind of multiple things, right? Cause your first thing is like, well, I want them to get the shot. And you're like, well, well, what went badly? It's like, well, they didn't get the shot. Well, what else went badly? Well, we yelled at each other. We screamed at each other. It's harder for us to get along. I feel like, you know, I feel distant from them. And that becomes part of the conversation too. And, and depending on the situation, that might or might, might not be the larger part of the conversation. So in, in some cases, it might really be about the fact that they don't want to get vaccinated, what, what they're going to do about that. And in some cases, it might be about the chasm that it's creating between you and, and the harm it's doing to the relationship. And so thinking about that a little bit and thinking then pretty clearly about what your goals are, that some set of goals might be about the relationship, but some set of goals might be about, you know, this person isn't going to change their mind. So for, you know, this person isn't going to change their mind, but they're still my dad. And mm -hmm. I want this to not completely destroy our relationship. That might be part of it. Um, so that's one set of things. The other big thing, I think, in terms of what it means for the conversation to go well and in terms of goals, and this is all universal stuff that I'll talk about in like any kind of difficult conversation is like, especially, you know, is to think about the relationship, to think about the multiplicity of goals that you have. The other thing that I would say with like any kind of difficult conversation, and it's it's true here and it's hard here, but you want a goal that's a soft goal. Like you want a goal that's a process goal and you you don't want your goal to be to change the other person's mind, mm -hmm. much as you might want them to change your mind. You really, and I'm not saying you shouldn't like, I mean, just to be clear, I, I think everybody should get the vaccine. I don't, it, it you know, it's maddening to me that there are people who don't want to get the vaccine. That said, mm -hmm. If I go into an individual conversation with, you know, with, with another person and my goal is to make them change their mind, I've lost the battle already. Hmm. It's not. And it's not going to work for a number of reasons. 
But but in terms of there's a couple of reasons why make it like intuitively it seems like the natural goal is to make them change their mind. And this is again true across all kinds of difficult conversations that intuitively the natural goal is to make things go my way. Um, that's a really natural goal. And maybe it's easier if you step back and you think broadly in, in difficult conversations that one of the things we always forget in them is that by definition, a conversation is between two people and they both have agency and they both value their own autonomy. And, and really importantly too, when you're talking to someone who you really think is wrong, it's still a conversation between two people who both think that they are right. So the other person doesn't think that they're wrong. And it's really hard to remember that. The more you think they're wrong, the harder it is to not see the conversation as a conversation between someone who's right and someone who's wrong, right? It's naive realism at its, at its most extreme to be like, oh, my view is right. And they're just walking around being mistaken, waiting for someone to tell them that they're mistaken. But that's not the world that they're in. They're in a world where they're right and they value their autonomy. And so what happens is the more that you, and also people tend to, um, people tr tend to do back what's done to them, basically. <laughs> so if, if what you do is you try really, really, really hard to push on them, they're gonna push back. That's what happens in every conversation. The more you push, the more they push back. So if you're really, really making them see things your way, the more they're gonna be like, I don't wanna do that. And that's, I mean, think about it. Like, how do you respond when someone comes to you and they're like, you know, David, you're completely wrong about everything. Like you're doing mm -hmm. this completely wrong. Let me tell you, you should go do the very opposite of the thing. The thing that you're planning to do that's really important to do, to you, you should go do the very opposite of that because mm -hmm. you're wrong about everything. You do not, you don't respond well to that. And, mm -hmm. and it's not because you're right, it's because you're a human and they're mm -hmm. not gonna respond well to that either. And, and also if you do change someone's mind, and I think, and this is where I'd be interested in your expertise, but my sense is it happens really gradually. So if you go into this conversation being, my goal is to change their mind, to make them do that, to do that in one conversation, what you're doing is you're setting yourself up for A, something you're almost bound to not succeed in because it's very unlikely that you're going to change your mind in one conversation. You're also setting yourself up for goals that are really antagonistic, where they're going to push back on you harder and harder and that sort of thing. And you're also um, setting yourself up to make yourself really frustrated. Because if you think my goal is to make them change their mind, as soon as it becomes clear that that's not going to happen, you're going to get angrier and angrier, and it's going to go off the rails. And you're going to get, you're, and you're going to do all these behaviors that feel good in the moment when you get mad, but are not actually going to be productive, are not mm. going to, are not going to do that. So the trick is to figure out how to set goals that are much more collaborative, that are much more exploratory, that are much more about trying to understand each other. And you can also, I mean, again, you're allowed to want them to change their mind, but that's not like, when you think about what makes this conversation go well, you might think like, oh, well, this, that conversation went well with a loved one, for instance, because at the end of it, um, we understood each other a little better. Um, we felt better about our relationship with each other. Mm -hmm. And from and maybe from my perspective, I felt like maybe I felt like there was some small step toward learning that might get them closer to a point where they get vaccinated. Like, mm -hmm. like and if that's your criterion of success, you're gonna, you're gonna feel better in your body. You're not gonna mm -hmm. get super stressed out. You're not gonna scream at them. You can feel better about what happens. And also it's it's a realistic, you're also going with a goal that's a that's realistically aligned to reality. Mm -hmm. It's funny, like we're so annoyed that they're not being that they're not aligned to reality. If you go and think thing, I'm gonna change their mind in one conversation you're basically being as unrealistic <laughs> vaccine denier. Like, like you're operating on an assumption that like, you, you know, David, like you can't do that. Like it doesn't yeah, that's work. really, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. You're operating in a dream world as much as they are, you know, that the thing I see a lot, like in my social media or whatever is people who are on, you know, our side where the good guys being like, Oh, people who oppose vaccinations, they oppose vaccinations because they're selfish or they oppose vaccinations because they're dumb or they oppose, or they oppose vaccinations because they don't care about others or about human life. And that's, I don't think that's right. Mm -mm. I think they, I think like, like people who are going out to protest against vaccines, they're doing something that's, I mean, it's weird to say, but it's altruistic. They're giving of their time to for a cause that they believe in. You know, th that's, 
it's not selfish. It, I think it's incredibly misguided, but it's, um, they're not doing it to hurt people. They're, you know, that, don't, that doesn't make any sense. They're doing it because they genuinely think it's important and they genuinely think it's the right thing to do and they're doing it. And, and that's really hard to picture when you're in our point of view, because it seems so obviously not the right thing to do, but they wouldn't be doing it if it didn't think the right, right thing to do. Like under what situation would someone be like, oh, you know what? I think opposing vaccines is evil, but I'm going to go spend my time doing it. It doesn't make any sense. Also, as you know, I feel like I picked up the, on this when you were just talking that the to know all this almost isn't, I mean, like this is important. I think I, I want to know why people do this, but knowing why is almost like uh, yeah. knowing why at the molecular level, your liver and your uh, pancreas do things, but that doesn't really translate to being healthy. There's yeah. the conversation we're trying to have doesn't necessarily require that we understand all of these things. And I think, I think if you're thinking about the conversation, I think a really dang, I think the person you want to focus on is you, that I think that having a theory and I, and I especially think, I mean, one thing I think where we're very um, asymmetrical is we have all these complex psychological theories for why other people have their beliefs, whereas our theories for why we have our own beliefs is because we're right. <laughs> so it's not so helpful. It's sort in some ways sort of undermines you if you're like, oh, I, I know what like human foibles make you have this belief. So I'm going to be more sympathetic because I see how all your imperfections lead you to believe your beliefs. I'm going to fix you because that's not where my beliefs come from. You got to focus on, you know, so I think that for us, I think one thing for us that's really helpful is to understand going in that, yeah, you know, basically the reason I believe this is because the people who I trust who are like me believe this. I, I honestly think that's the real reason I believe it. I didn't, I haven't read the studies. I don't know. I read it because I, because people who I believe know what they're saying, know that. And that's why they believe too. So think about yourself as helpful in that way. But the bigger thing I think is to think about, you put all that aside and focus on yourself when you think about the actual conversation and your goals of the conversation and stuff like that. And if you may or may not, I mean, listeners may or may not agree with this prescription. It seems to me to be the prescription that most of the experts suggest, but what the prescription that most of the experts suggest for these conversations is some variation of the same prescription that we in the communications business give for all kinds of difficult conversations, which is basically like fight the inclination. You're going to have a very strong inclination to push really hard to make the conversation go your way mm -hmm. and to advocate for your point of view. And to whatever degree you can fight that inclination, to whatever degree you can sort of do the opposite of that, you're going to increase your chances of the conversation um, happening in a way that's not damaging in the relationship. And also paradoxically, the, the, the less you push to make the conversation get the outcomes you want, the greater the chances of it actually getting the outcomes you want. That the more you push, the more they, they're going to push back and it's sort of guaranteed to go off the rails. But if you can do it in a way that's collaborative and involves a lot of listening and, and to whatever degree you can, involves actual genuine respect. So not just pretending to be interested <laughs> and respectful, but actually having it go on inside of you and actually genuinely being open to multiplicity of outcomes as opposed to kind of pretending. And that's hard. You got to kind of find that in your heart a little bit and make goals be the ones, ones where you can, where you're more likely to succeed. And those might be, um, so one goal is just to like do a process that I feel good about, like feel like I did the thing, feel like I did the right things is probably your best goal. And then when you think about what those right things are, you think, well, what are the outcomes I'm hoping for? And you'd say like for a really good outcome for me would be that at the end of the conversation, our relationship feels, um, again, I'm going to assume as like a loved one you care about. At the end of the conversation, our relationship feels not worse, possibly better than it did before. Um, that we feel open and comfortable at having another conversation. Because I do think if, they are, if their mind is going to change, it's not going to happen in one conversation. So we both feel open and comfortable to having another conversation. Um, and, that we're both, and, and, and that we're both interested in learning. And I think both is really important. Because again, I think a real fantasy is the idea that we're going to have a conversation where they're really interested in learning, but I don't have to be interested mm. in learning. 
that's tough. People don't want to have a conversation where they're the only one doing any learning. And so part of it is also going and thinking about like what you might want to learn. Like for instance, what you and I were sort of talking about earlier about something saying, you know what, I'm actually, so for me, um, to say, wow, it's it's really hard for me to see someone how see how how a non-insane person could think this. And yet, here's my father-in-law, who I think is in general a non-insane person. I might actually be curious to understand that point of view a little bit better. I might even learn something. I might even, you know, you know, so being open to having your mind changed and being open that you might learn something was really helpful. Um, so I think you can do I think those are some things you can do before. Well, I think thinking about these, these are stuff, this is so good because I have you if you ever got into a, an argument with someone online or in person and there was a YouTube available, <laughs> the, there's a moment where you get this urge where you're like, I want to show you some videos and, or I want to show you some things. But if, if you've ever been on the receiving end of that with someone, especially in, in a situation like this, and they're like, let me just show you this video of this guy saying that the, you're like, yeah, I don't want that. And, uh, that can be the moment where you lose everything because they're like, well, this person's not interested. In that. Well, yeah. And so a big part there is like consent. Like you need, cause part of that, let me show you that thing is it's like the, let me is like, not, it's like, I'm going to show you that thing that you didn't ask me to show you. And so a really big part of it. And again, this is like, it's true in all difficult conversations, but I've seen it, especially in the models of these kinds of conversations. It's just sort of get to the point where like, you're like, Oh, I see how we see some things differently here. Um, would it be okay if I shared some stuff with you about, you know, so someone says, I forget, you had a whole bunch of examples, you know, someone says, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't been tested yet. And I guess, I guess the sort of scripty thing. So let's take that. Someone's like, it hasn't really been tested. I'm nervous about it. And you sort of say, oh, you know, so part of it is to really let them know that you've heard that. And that all, and to whatever degree you can find something in that, that you can, that you can acknowledge, you don't have to agree with it, but sort of to be like, ah, you know, yeah, I can see how that'd be scary. Maybe it's scary to, maybe scary to take a drug that, you know, you feel hasn't been approved. I say, yeah, that really is scary. So so I guess you're worried about that. Yeah. You're worried about your kids. Yeah. I want, I want to, you know, I have to look after my kids. I have responsibilities with my family. I don't want to get sick. You might want to say, well, you know, if, if you want, you know, my, my impression is that there's a lot of evidence that the vaccine is pretty safe. And if you want, I could share with you, you know, and, and you might even say, I mean, this is something, you know, you can all say, you know, yeah, I was, I was kind of nervous about it first, which, you know, to be honest, David, like I was, when I first heard they were developing this brand new vaccine, they were giving it to everybody in the world. I was like, that sounds really scary. And bit by bit, I got less scared about it, but to be able to say like, yeah, you know, I was scared about that too. Um, you know, I can see how they really worry some, you know, if you want, I could share with you some of the evidence that I've seen about what makes it less safe. It's just, if you want, you know, if you want, I could share that with you. And people are much more likely to hear it if they've given you their consent. But if you're like, let me show you why you're wrong. It's like, yeah, you've, again, you've lost it. So a big part of it too, in terms of that focus on yourself is to watch for, you talked earlier about like, to sort of watch what your actual motivations are that I think for a lot of us, what happens is we'll go in sort of saying, oh, I want to be, you know, maybe we can go in saying, oh, I want to be collaborative. I want to listen, but then we sort of get triggered and you can sort of look inside of yourself and you're like, oh, now my motivation is actually to just prove that they're wrong or make them feel bad or like insult them. Or, and it's like, mm. once you feel that in yourself, you got to slow down. You got to back off because it's, your it's motivations can change midstream. That's, that's interesting. They always do. They yeah. always do. Like, yeah. and, and, and whatever happens in the conversation, if I'm hearing you correctly, whatever happens in that conversation gets rolled into that conversation and changes the nature of the conversation. Cause sometimes yep. you can feel like I'm still going from A to B to C to D and I'm just trying to hit these points, Yep. but the conversation mutates and evolves very quickly so that there are no B, C, D there. You've, 
You're, and you, and you, the reason the conversation started, it changes. Now you're having a different motivation and you have different goals or new goals have yep. appeared. This is, what, is this, this is what I'm hearing from you. And that's the most normal thing that happens in difficult conversations. The thing I see again and again, people who come to the workshops, like we have them go at, look at the conversations that they've had just about all kinds of things that don't go well. And the thing that happens again and again is people go in with these really noble intentions, you know, like, like if you ask people, what do you want to be like, in most cases, what do you want to be like in difficult conversations? They sort of understand. I want to be collaborative. I want to be empathetic. I want to, I want to listen a lot. Like no one says, I want to insult the other person and, and not listen. It's like, no one thinks that's a good strategy, but what happens is that um, that's sort of our prefrontal cortex and knows that. And what happens is we go into that conversation and it starts to go off the rails and we start to get a little bit triggered. And then our, our like our lizard brain kicks in and they're like, no, no, I know what I should do. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to win. Like I'm gonna win. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell this person how stupid they are. I'm gonna, you know, more subtly, just I'm gonna push for my point of view. Like I'm gonna stop listening, and and that's when it breaks. That's when the conversation goes off the rails. So part of it is having a sense of what your triggers are. Part of it might even be. I mean, very often one one thing I counsel in difficult conversations is to say up front, I want to talk to you about this stuff. I know it's hard for us to talk about this stuff. I'd like for us to find a way to talk to each other where we don't get triggered. Maybe we can try our best to do that. Maybe even to say, you know, and and you know. And one thing I might want to say is, you know, at a certain point, if, if, if it starts to get heated, say, ah, you know what, I think, I think I'm getting at the point where, remember at the beginning, we said we wanted to keep this nice. I'm, I'm feeling kind of triggered. Maybe I need to take a break, but can we come back to this another time? Wow. I like you this know, fourth wall breaking thing. It feels very freeing. Yeah. A big, a really big thing often, especially in conversations with loved ones, I think, I think having the conversation about the conversation is incredibly important. So for instance, if you have a loved one with whom you've talked about this a few times and it's been tense, I would strongly counsel that that's the first thing you need to talk about. Hmm. The first thing you talk about isn't the vaccine. The first thing you talk about is, hey, you know, we keep talking about this thing and it's really hard for both of us and it's tough on the relationship. And um, I'd like to continue talking about it if that's okay with you, but I'd also like for us to find a way to do that that, isn't, that doesn't feel so stressful because I love you and I, wanna, and I want us to continue to get along. How does that sound? And how can we do that? And maybe, and maybe, so maybe the next time we have a conversation, we can both keep an eye on it. And you can even say like, you know, I mean, this maybe feels like a lot, but you can even say, you know, hey, what we'll do is let's see how far, how long we can talk about this without it going off the rails. And when it starts to go off the rails, we'll both take a break and come back to it later. Does that sound, how does that sound to you? And I'm going to try to be really respectful of you. I want to ask you a lot of questions. I just want to understand your point of view. Maybe after we do that, we can talk about mine a little bit. Mm -hmm. So that conversation about the conversation is really important. One of the things that we, when we were talking about just in general, uh, we had our previous conversation about this, the, uh, why, when you started to, to, when you start this fourth wall breaking thing, both with the other person and with yourself, you can start asking, why do I want to do this? And then you ask again, there's, I think you could talk about this for a second. It was, if I remember correctly, there's like a, a nested, uh, Russian doll thing of like, why do I want to do this? And then why do I want to do this? And you get your motivations keep getting more and more specific. And if you keep tracing them, you can go to all the way down to like quirks and muons and stuff of like, why, 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 why? But somewhere in that chain, there is a thing like, uh, and I've heard you mention it a couple of times here. I'm having this conversation with you because I love you is this yeah. like, uh, uh, is really getting to the, to the bottom of the thing. Right. And, and maybe also your, your motivation is I wish you trusted the people that I trust. Yep. Like, and you may not have admitted to yourself or even know consciously that that's actually what's driving you. Like I, I just, and in some ways you're thinking, I wish you were on my team and not on yep. this other team. And this would yep. be much easier. Um, and you're not going to just think about, you're not even going to go down that line of processing if you don't actively choose to do so. Yep. And then the thing to do is to name that in a way where it can become a shared goal 
rather than, uh, so one of the big tricks in conversations is to try to make the goals and the stories be shared as opposed to your own. So if you go in and say like, the thing in this conversation is I wish you were on my team, that's your goal. But if you said, it's hard that it feels like we're on different teams and that's hard for both of us, all of a sudden that becomes shared. So it's a very, very small shift in language. But if you say the problem is that you're not on my team, that's your story. But if you say the problem is we're not on the same team, that's a story that both people can share. And, and you still capture the same issue, but you've done it in a way that's not um, partisan to yourself, mm, if that makes sense. Partisan to yourself. So, so figuring out how to do that and make that be about the conversation is really helpful. And a big thing is to make the other, in as many ways as possible, to find ways to make the other person a, success, a partner in the success of the conversation. And I think we do the opposite of that. I think we go in and we sort of have all these private strategies that we're gonna implement that are secret. And when we do that, it doesn't work nearly as well if we make them a partner in it. So to say to them like, hey, I want this conversation to go well. Here are some of the things I'm worried about. What are some of the things that you're worried about in this conversation? Well, I don't like when we yell at each other. I don't like the last time we cried. <laughs> you know, I don't like when you boss me around. It makes me feel crappy. I don't like, you know, last time you hung up, you know, we hung up the phone and you know, I got mad. I didn't like that. I, that's not what I want to be like with you. But, so we both want that. And what can we do together? As opposed to like me sort of privately hmm. sort of strategizing to figure out how I'm going to control the conversation. And the more I do that, the more the other person's going to respond the way you would respond to someone who's privately strategizing to how they're going to control the conversation, which is to be defensive. And, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's nuanced. I mean, one thing I think is kind of, I mean, whatever, as someone who like, you want to look for silver linings or whatever, this is a really hard situation that we're in, but like one potential silver lining I think to look for is it's nice to think that like if, if people, if your listeners, for instance, like go and practice, like you want to practice these skills, maybe it's nice to think that you're practicing these skills partly to address the issue of the vaccine, but also partly because they're good skills to learn and they might help the relationship that you're working on anyhow. Like, you know, your loved one who you argue, argue about about this, you might also argue with them about other things, you know? And so this could also be like a, a kind of really high stakes, you know, opportunity to practice and learn some new skills and stuff that might serve you in other places too. And that's another thing when you think about goals, like, again, like increasing the number of goals that might maximize your chances of success. That like maybe a goal is like, yeah, this is a chance for us to learn to communicate better. And so if the conversation doesn't go well, that's great. That's part of learning. The learning necessitates, if everything went well every time, you'd be learning nothing. So if learning becomes a goal, then that's great because then you can absorb, quote, failure. But yeah, great. That conversation go what didn't go well. Amazing. So that's a data for what we could do next time. So having a growth, I guess that's a growth mindset. You know, having a growth mindset will help, having a less control, all of those things will help you set goals where you can feel better about what happened, you know? And it's hard, it's hard when the stakes feel high. Cause in this case, the stakes feel enormously high, right? You have someone who's close to you, they're not getting the vaccine. It feels incredibly high, incredibly high stakes to them. But the thing to remember is that it feels really high stakes, it feels high stakes to you, it feels high stakes to them too. They're not, this isn't casual for them. You're asking them to inject a foreign substance into their body that they think is dangerous. So it's not, it's a big deal for them too. And so it's not fair to sort of say, well, you know, I'm going to be really pushy and prescriptive and impatient because this is so important for me, because then they're just going to be pushing and impatient and prescriptive because it's just as important to them. It's not, it's not a small deal for them. It's a big deal for them. And it's, again, when something's a big deal for you, it's easy to forget that it's a big deal for them. You're asking them to do something terrible from their point of view. Something that was really compelling to me uh, earlier was that, uh, don't set changing their mind as the goal. Uh, yeah. Try to let's think of uh, you know all the many goals that you could set uh, in the in the long slow walk to possibly that being an outcome. Yeah. And so I'm imagining that there, we could think of a million goals, and but 
uh, for just for the sake of a quick primer on this, what would be some good goals to set in your initial conversation that aren't all the way down at the end down there of, I need this person to flip. Like, so I think there, I mean, a big one is, you know, is like preservation or repair of the relationship. Cause sometimes the relationships have been damaged by this. So preservation, if it hasn't been damaged repair, if it has been damaged okay. is part of it. Maybe that's first. The next one is, um, and like a, a variation of that is like being able to live with each, with each other through this difference. And that might be the outcome. Like in some cases, like, like, here's the thing, if maybe your, 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 your father isn't going to change his mind, then an important goal is to figure out how you're going to um, live with each other comfortably during that. How are you going to maintain your boundaries? How are you going to deal with the fact that you still don't want him coming over to visit your grandkids when he's not going to change mind? That might, the goal might shift. So you might find that that's actually what we need to work on is just how are we going to love and respect each other? And how are we going to handle these things given that you're not going to change your mind? That might be important. So a goal is that, a goal is how to, how to preserve the relationship, how to repair the relationship, how to, another goal I think would be learning, both learning learning about their point of view and learning about um, these skills. And then I think, I think like the sort of tactical outcome goal, the thing that you're hoping for kind of is, you know, openness to another conversation about it. And, and, and if you're, and if, and to the degree to which you are hoping that they're changed their mind, and I think you want to kind of, that's your own it's a subtle thing, but so that's sort of your own hope as opposed to the goal for the conversation. I think the goal for the conversation should be, should be something you can say out loud to the other person when they would all, they would also want to have that. So the goal is let's try to understand each other. Let's see if we can resolve some of our differences. Let's see if I can, we can repair our relationship. Those are the shared goals of the conversation. Your personal hope in the conversation, and you can even try, you know, my hope is that, you know, after a few of these conversations, you might start to become a bit more open to the idea of getting the vaccine. That's sort of your hope. But I don't think that, I don't, I'm not so sure that's what you should tie your criteria of success to. I think that's kind of what you're hoping for. And so it's a subtle difference, but mm -hmm. and if it sounds like I'm being too soft, like I can imagine some listeners saying like, yeah, but they have to change their mind. Like it's so important, but it's like, yeah, but that's out of your control. Like, I also just want, you know, I want the virus to disappear tomorrow magically, but that's out of my control. I can't, it's just not a realistic thing to hope for. And I think that same thing where they have to change their mind right away. Like you might feel that, but I think the consensus of experts is like, there's not a way to make that happen. Yeah. And so given that it's not, you should have a goal that's, you should have a goal that's not detached from reality. If there was someone who came into this show and they're like, I didn't want to listen to an hour. I wanted, I wanted like a, a, a one, two, three, here's what the, here's what to do. Here's what not to do. If you had like a, um, if you only had so many minutes to like impart as much wisdom as possible to somebody, what, what would you say? I'd say the thing is to really remember to really, the slogan I've been using a lot of this stuff recently is like, the harder you push, the more they push back. So to really remember, to really watch for yourself that like, that all the things that you're naturally going to think to do to, to like force them to do it, the more you do that, the more it's going to backfire on you. And so the job, so your job is to try to do it in a way that's as collaborative as you can do, as empathetic as you can do. It doesn't mean letting go of what you believe, as curious as you can do. Um, and by collaborative part, and, 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 and I think that thing we talked about earlier about, about trying to have the conversation in a way where you make them partners in it, make them partners in the success. And again, I think when talking with loved ones to really think about the that, that part of what I think in most cases you're concerned about, it's the vaccine, but it's also the relationship. And that's something where you guys have more of a shared interest. You might disagree about whether or not to get the vaccine, but you probably agree that you both don't want this to tear you apart. And so finding a way to have the conversation in a way that doesn't tear you apart to be open to an outcome where maybe you still disagree, but at least you can still get along to be open to an outcome where you can keep talking about it to do it in more than one conversation. I don't know. Those feel like some of the things. Some notes, like you want to be partners 
enlist them in partners in the success yeah. of, but also set the terms of success as not changing the person's mind, but, no. but the better terms of success are to not become this person's enemy and to be able to have further conversations with them and to, yeah. and all that plays straight into the, what, um, Brooke Harrington was saying, because like she said, the moment you are categorized as them or as the other, um, blood is not thicker here. This, uh, you will become an untrusted source who they have to deal with. It's almost like, uh, you become someone that like, well, I have to love you, but I don't have to ever listen to another thing you say about this ever. And there are plenty of people who know, who have a strange family who know what that feels like. Yeah. Um, if you thought you will have zero success, uh, in fact, you'll actually become, uh, a dangerous entity ep uh, epistemically once that happens, because once you are labeled as a them, any information you bring now becomes questionable. It becomes questionable the moment you hand it over, whereas before it could have been neutral from another party. And vice versa. Remember, it's going to happen to you too. Like mm. it's not, you know, so you want to watch that again. Like I, there's this, there's a stuff in all this psychology where you sort of like pathologize the other person's behavior. Yeah. 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 So it's like, Oh, they're going to do this thing. They're going to get all tribal. You're going to get all tribal too. You're mm -hmm. going to do that too. And it's really important to remember that they're not the only one who has psychology. <laughs> you know? Like it's so easy to think, oh, I see what they're doing. You're going to do that too. Yeah. Sure. And I think that's part of why people get so upset about these conversations. Like partly it's because they're concerned about safety, but partly they're also concerned about like that. They're concerned about, oh, this person I love is becoming a them to me, you know? So the thing that's been happening a lot is I've just seen how many people there are coming to my workshops who want to talk about, who have difficult conversations that they're either planning to have with loved ones, that they're in the midst of with loved ones, that they want to have with loved ones, that they're hesitant about, they're hesitant to have those conversations, they're nervous. Um, and thinking about hearing that so much with people in my workshops and also thinking about being on your show, I thought it'd be a great idea to actually, for me to offer a, we're gonna, I'm going to do a free online workshop and I'm going to invite you to partake in it. Yes, really okay. yes for sure. Of course, of course. I mean, so, like, it, it, you it limited our time here was limited, but like, uh, there's just, I have years and years of obsession to throw at this. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. And, so, and, and in the workshop, what I want to do is in some ways, it's almost the opposite of the podcast. Like the podcast is like you and me talking a lot of people getting lots and lots and lots of information. I think the thing that I really want to do in the workshop, I think I believe strongly is for people actually do this. They need time for like reflection and practice. So what I mostly want the workshop to focus on is it's not going to be like a huge information dump. It's going to be more taking a few key ideas and give people a chance to actually sit down, do some reflection, think about how you're going to, how this applies to your specific conversation. Maybe talk about it with a couple other people in the workshop to work through some ideas and actually prepare yourself for that conversation that you're going to have to, to, Think about how to repair the conversation that went badly last time to think about how to approach the conversation that might be hard for you and so to really give people a chance to do that in this online workshop so that workshop is going to be on it's going to be on august the 30th it's a free workshop but you have to register in advance it's at 7 p.m eastern time going to run about 90 minutes okay you have to do this workshop if you're listening to this show then you've already demonstrated that this is something you want to do uh it's free you're not going to get that offer anywhere when it comes to this kind of stuff it's a free workshop you will practice and learn how to do the things we've talked about in this episode with Misha, who is a very sought after super expert on this topic. Uh, you're not going to get an offer like this uh, maybe ever for the rest of your life. I'm really overselling this so that you will do it. So the, the, uh, the other thing is uh, it's at a good time of day and you have plenty of lead time. So all you have to do is click the link. The link will be available on Facebook, on Twitter, and on you are not so smart.com. And in the show notes for this, wherever you get this show, look in the little show notes thing on your app and you'll find the link there as well. I'll make this very easy for you and I'll keep talking about it, promoting it. 
but click the link and do this. It's uh, We've never done anything like this on the show, and I think it's really cool that you could go one step further and not just go, oh, that was interesting. Let me actually practice it with the person I was talking to or listening to on the show. So uh, do that. I'm, I'm urging you to do it. Please do that. Okay. There's my, there's my big sip. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Okay, we've reached the halfway point of this episode, and yes, it's a very long episode because this is important. I want you to walk away from this with tools you can use to make a difference, to do your part, to encourage at least one person who is hesitant to get vaccinated. And so far, we've covered what not to do and how to set the stage for an actual persuasion attempt. So now, I want to switch gears and spend the rest of our time with people who are experts on persuasion itself. Now, persuasion comes in many forms, depending on what it is you want to persuade a person to do. And those forms match up with the mental construct in question. Generally, they fall into the categories of beliefs, attitudes, values, or behaviors. And no matter which one is your focus, you'll be dealing with all of them at the same time. But if the end goal is to affect a person's confidence in a statement of fact, the specific steps are a little bit different than if you wish to affect a person's attitude, leaving them more or less positive or negative. When it comes to values, that's a whole other thing. Luckily for us, we're talking about behavior. And with that, we can focus on motivations and intentions to behave or not to behave in a certain way. In this domain, there is one technique that towers above all others, motivational interviewing. And to talk about it, I invited an expert on that topic to teach us some things. Her name is Karen Tamirius. I'm Karen Tamirius. I'm a political psychiatrist, and I am the founder of Smart Politics, an organization that teaches progressives how to have more productive and persuasive conversations with people they disagree with. Tamirius helped invent something called the UncleBot, and I'll have links to it in the show notes. It's an AI program you can talk to and argue with and attempt to persuade in conversations about all sorts of things, all sorts of issues of the day. And she recently added vaccine hesitancy to its repertoire. She also holds workshops in which you can learn how to use motivational interviewing to nudge the people in your life one way or the other. And I highly recommend that you either do that or you sit down with a few sessions with UncleBot before you try any of this yourself. So here's Karen Tamirez talking about motivational interviewing. You never know for sure why any conversation has has gone wrong. There are a lot of possibilities. I mean, one possibility is that they are using the wrong technique and that they are pulling or pushing rather than welcoming the other person to join them. Another possibility, though, is that the conversation actually went a lot better than they think. And the other person is just taking some time to change. I like that. Uh, so if I'm hearing you correctly, we don't want to push. We don't want to pull. We want to create a good conversation space. And on the other side of that is it can take more than one, more than 10 maybe conversations to for someone go fully assimilates, accommodates, and does everything that takes to get to the point where you go, hmm, maybe I should look at this differently. Right. Let me ask this 
sort of broad thing. What are some things we absolutely, 100%, if you could bullet point them, we should not do? Uh, really, there are three big things. One, one is lecturing. The second is shaming. And the third is ostracizing. Okay, let's break into it. So I'm, I'm assuming when you say lecturing, we're going to start, we're talking about facts, figures, links, and so on. Is so how that how it's being presented? I'm assuming. So tell me about lecturing. Yeah, when you're coming in and telling someone else what to think, uh, and and it doesn't matter if you're coming in and doing that from a, a place of, you know, their best interests, or whether you're coming in from uh, a place of just kind of forcing it on them, it it makes them feel threatened, and people naturally respond negatively to that. Um, the biggest reason for that is reactance. People don't like to feel controlled. We we all have a natural aversion to that and we'll push back against it when when we feel like someone is trying to control us. It seems strange. What, what do you think it is that it feels like someone's trying to control you when they're just trying to teach you something or tell you something like, like in some situations, I'm very okay with being lectured. Some I'll go to YouTube and watch videos all day long. Yeah. So what right. makes it feel threatening? So it's when you have pre-existing beliefs We're we're generally fine with lectures when we haven't made up our minds about something. If, if we are curious and seeking new information and in a place where we're reconsidering our beliefs already, then, then we're quite open to taking new information in. But when someone's coming at us with new information that contradicts what we already believe because they are trying to get us to think or behave differently, that feels controlling. And it feels like a, like a meta-level thing here is encouraging the other party to feel like they're in a comfortable learning space, to get them in the learning state of mind. Yeah. Um, which will be, is, it, that'll prevent them from getting into the reactive state of mind, or at least it'll do some, it'll help, I'm assuming. You, you can never be 100% sure that you can get somebody out of that state of mind. And in our current politicized environment, it's, it's all the more likely. It's almost like people are primed right now to, to be, you know, experience reactants. They're kind of in a constant state of reactance, even like just the topic of vaccination coming up triggers that mm. feeling. So you're going to have to do a lot of work, not just to not control them, but to prove to them that your goal is not to control them. See, all the persuasive techniques that I've looked at over the years, I, I keep, if, if there's usually been, a, it's almost always a step at the beginning, which is build rapport or some version of, of the idea of building rapport. And I've noticed over time that that step is getting bigger and longer and it's like crowding out the rest of the thing because you have to do so much work to assure the other side that this isn't that kind of conversation. Uh, if they feel any hint of shame, if they feel any possibility that there is a, that they could be ostracized as a result of this conversation, or that you are saying you're them, you're not part of my us, or vice versa, it's over. Which I feel like the other two things you just mentioned are sort of combined in that way. If you could talk about that a minute. Absolutely. I, I do think what you're picking up on is our, our polarized political situation. So people are trusting each other less and less. It, it used to be 
that that you could draw upon a certain reservoir of of trust in in our community, but there are certain topics where there is no trust and in those areas, you have to work a lot harder. I think that most of the time, no matter what you're doing, uh, it's going to have flavors of the Socratic method and, and it's going to have DNA with motivational interviewing. Um, let's talk about that for a minute. I don't think I've ever really had anyone on the show talk deeply about motivational interviewing. What What is motivational interviewing? And I'm leading up to, I'm just going to sit back and let you talk because my favorite part of your uh, seminar was the ultimate motivational interviewing question. So we'll get to that last, but. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Tell uh, me a little bit about it. Motivational interviewing is a guiding uh, communication style where basically you help people make the best decisions for themselves. And it, it comes out of psychotherapy. It comes out of particularly work uh, having to do with uh, substance abuse, where they mm. realized that telling people what to do just wasn't particularly productive, that people generally know what's good for themselves, that tell, telling them uh, that doesn't make it more likely that they're going to kick a substance. Uh, and, and instead, what people need is someone to be there supporting them as they make the change that they generally know they need to change, that need to make it some level. And you might wonder, well, with vaccination, what if they don't necessarily think they need vaccination? Well, then you help them weigh the costs and benefits of vaccination. You don't come in and provide that decision for them. You don't provide the facts and figures. You don't provide the evidence. You help them figure out on their own whether vaccination makes sense for them. So often what we do in conversations, whether in therapy or just in political dialogue or dialogue about vaccines, is we ask them why they believe what they currently believe or why they're doing what they're currently doing. And when we ask that question, we're actually helping them reinforce their commitment to that position. So why don't you want to get vaccinated? Oh, well, I'm scared of getting vaccinated, or I don't trust the vaccine, or I think it might be worse than COVID. So you are bringing all of those ideas to the foreground in, in their thinking, making them cognitively available, when what we actually want is to make the ideas for getting the vaccine cognitively available. The motivational interviewing is most successful in, in situations of high ambivalence. It's, it's going to be less successful when people are have already made up their mind. That's what we call pre-contemplative. Mm -hmm. And uh, it that's gonna require a lot more work, a lot more time sitting with the person and, and looking for opportunities when they might be rethinking things. Exactly. So, so that's the person who is, is at the one on the uh, motivation <laughs> scale. <laughs> How much motivation do you have to change right now? One. Collaborative partnership. What does that mean? It means you don't come in as the expert. You don't come in as as somebody who knows exactly what needs to be done or how to do it. Instead, mm -hmm. you're there to help them learn. You're going to learn together. 
you have told you have said in the past that there is an ultimate motivational interviewing question. This is a question that, according to you, will make you feel <laughs> like a superhero. <laughs> I, what is I it? feel like a superhero every time. <laughs> <laughs> so what is that? That is how how motivated are you right now to change? And in the uh, vaccination space, the, the question I ask is, how how do you feel about getting vaccinated right now on a scale from one to 10, where 10 is you absolutely want to get vaccinated and one is you absolutely do not want to get vaccinated. So why is this such a powerful question? Well, it's actually the follow-up that is the super question. Okay. <laughs> so, so uh, you get, you get a really good sense of where they are. One yeah. of the things you discover first is actually they're not, they're often not quite as opposed to vaccination as you think they are. I'm always surprised when I ask that question and somebody gives me a five. Hmm. I'm just like, really? I thought you were a one. I thought for sure you are a one. And, and actually there's a lot of room for change there. Now, the follow-up that's really important to understand is you ask them why not a lower number. The, the natural impulse there, the thing everybody wants to do is say, well, why, why not higher? Why don't you want to get vaccinated? And that's the exact opposite. No, you want to ask them, why wasn't it a lower number? You said five. Why didn't you say four or three? And that puts them in the position of articulating their personal motivations for change. And, and that is kind of shoehorning you, you into the shift. When they do this articulation, when they're, when they're trying to conjure up, they're trying to, to produce something that seems reasonable, uh, what should be your next step? Just sit back and listen. Should you inter interject? Should you are there other tricks of the trade? What is the goal here? The most important thing is to listen. Uh, once you listen, it's a good idea after they've finished uh, to to reflect back what what you've heard, and that kind of cements it in. It they might not even realize how much they've said. But when you reflect it back, they they really hear it. So you might say, for example, oh, so what I'm hearing from you right now is that there are some reasons you think vaccination might be a good choice for you. You are really worried that if you get sick with COVID, you could get really sick and maybe even die. And you're also concerned that if you get sick with COVID, you might give it to your grandmother and you would feel horrible about that. Is that right? And and then you go from there. If I'm hearing you correctly, like in the in the space of motivational interviewing, you're because usually this is for ambivalence, and there's some measure of ambivalence on just about anything. Uh, if they're not in the pre-contemplative stage, they're somewhere out there. They're going to have reasons for and reasons not for. They're going to have right. like, justifications for remaining unvaccinated, justifications for possibly getting vaccinated. Mm -hmm. If you just sit there and ask them to tell you all the reasons not to get vaccinated, then that's going to be, I mean, at the physical level, those that those neural networks are going to be strengthened right there in front of you. Right. But if um, instead you listen, you're patient, you don't 
shame them, ostracize them, or spook them in any way, and then you reflect back the side of the argument that is in favor of vaccination, you will, on some level, get them a little closer. Yes. Yes, exactly. Now, there is one other piece that that is a little complicated, but we can also throw it in there, which is to the extent that that you um, talk about their reasons for not getting vaccinated, you want to do it in in a way that takes ownership of that so they don't have to. So uh, I might, for example, when I'm trying to get them to talk about their reasons for wanting change to list out, you know, in the past, we've talked about some of the reasons you have for not wanting to get change, X, Y, and Z. Let's talk about the reasons why you do want to change. And so now I've kind of I've almost created like a little steel man on on the side. They can, they don't have to hold on to that. Now they they can let go and focus on the reasons for change. I love this. And here's the thing for anyone listening to this, uh, this isn't just like, you know, something cobbled together from a bunch of psychology textbooks. This is in being used every day all across the world in therapeutic sessions. It is one of the most heavily used and tested forms of therapy for people who are trying to, in quotation marks, change. Uh, And uh, if you think it's tough to convince somebody to get vaccinated, imagine convincing someone to, you know, back off from a physical addiction. Right. I learned learned motivational interviewing in the setting of uh, smoking and smoking people who wanted to give up smoking people who wanted uh to quit using methamphetamine uh cocaine like it was these were hardcore drug addictions so it works it works but i also you know there's a big caveat here like humans are complex and nuanced and brains are quite a mysterious powerful thing and they're inside social networks with lots of varying levels of influence uh, your mileage will vary, and sometimes your mileage will vary minute by minute with a person. So um, I know when I was talking to a negotiation expert about this, they really encouraged thinking, uh, trying to to pay attention and focus and uh, work on your own frustration and how much that escapes as, like, do you have anything from the world of, of psychology for how do I manage my own behavior in this situation? So many things <laughs> in, in, in the, uh, in the, in the setting of motivational interviewing, they call that impulse to, to control the other person, the, the writing impulse, the, you know, the, the urge to correct them. And you constantly have to be checking yourself, like be aware of what's going on with you emotionally while you're having the conversation. In terms of managing your frustration, I find setting reasonable expectations to be absolutely essential. Going in with an awareness of how little control you actually have over this situation um, and then shifting your attention of control. So I do not have control over whether or not this person gets vaccinated. Ultimately, that's up to them. I don't have control over their attitudes toward vaccination. Ultimately, that's up to them. 
What I do have control over is how I talk with them. And so I'm going to channel all my energy into controlling that. And I judge my success not by whether or not they actually get vaccinated, but whether or not I stuck to motivational interviewing principles, whether I did everything within my power to make them feel safe and respected, and uh, and I provided information in, in a way that was accessible to them. It, people often lose sight of um, what, what the ultimate goal is with this work. Okay. Um, I've talked with a lot of people who say, well, you know, I just can't have these conversations anymore that it, n- people don't, people can't learn, people never change. Um, and when I start asking them, well, what is it you're really hoping to do? And they'll say, well, I just want them to understand that they're wrong. And, and getting people to understand that they're wrong isn't the goal. <laughs> getting, getting people to understand that you're right isn't the goal. The goal is helping people get vaccinated. Um, so reminding people of that can be really useful. We have reached the final segment in this episode about vaccine hesitancy and how to talk to people about that hesitancy to hopefully persuade them to get vaccinated. We've covered how to start a conversation, how to make it collaborative, how to prevent others from feeling othered, both as you start and as you proceed. And we've also looked at the foundations and basic tenets of motivational interviewing. So with all of that, let's move on to something called street epistemology. SE, as they call it, in the community. And it is a community. It's a large community of people around the world, many of them with podcasts and YouTube channels and so on. And they've been doing this thing for years. They're all devoted to this form of technique rebuttal that works extraordinarily well with fact-based claims, with beliefs. But more than that, at least for me, its application is particularly well-suited for guided metacognition helping a person think about their own thinking and see, perhaps for the first time, the how of how they arrive at their levels of confidence on anything, how they arrive at their attitudes and so on. I recommend, if you want to use this technique, make sure you first determine if the other person is in that pre-contemplation stage. If they are, then use SE or motivational interviewing to help them enter a state of active learning, to get out of that pre-contemplation stage. And only do that if they're in that stage. But if they're not in that stage, if they answer that they aren't 0 out of 100 or 100 out of 100 or they're not a 1 or a 10 on whatever scale you present, then make sure when you use this to take Tamaris's advice and don't focus all of your time just drawing out the other person's justifications and focusing on those justifications. The goal here should be to help them see how reliable their reasoning is, and in that process, see their own process. And as they produce their own counter-arguments, put more emphasis on that side of their ambivalence, if you can. That's if you intend to persuade. And yes, if you intend to persuade, you should be honest with yourself that that's what you're doing. 
Now, street epistemology isn't really meant to persuade people. That's not what its purpose is. Its purpose is to help people get better at critical thinking, to help them engage with metacognition in a way they may not have done before. But it can be a useful tool in the persuasion toolkit. So, yes, street epistemology. I sat down with five experts at the same time over Zoom to take a deep dive into this technique, and I'll post a video of this discussion up on Patreon and then a little bit later up on YouTube. But for this episode, I'm pulling some highlights. So it was a very long discussion. I'm only pulling out about half of it. So to see the whole thing, check out those places. Okay, here's some of my roundtable conversation with the conversation experts in street epistemology. All right, Anthony Magnabosco, who are you? Hey, David, thanks for having me and my friends on your show. I am the executive director of Street Epistemology International, and I've been going out for the last eight years, engaging with strangers on the street with my camera and recording the conversations where I'm using this approach of street epistemology. And it's caught on, it's catching on. People are noticing what we're doing. They're seeing the utility of it. And I'm, I'm very, you know, excited to be here to talk about this technique with you and to see how we can probably help your listeners figure out a better way of talking with people about deeply held beliefs and sensitive topics. Hi there. Um, I'm out of Hillsborough, North Carolina. My originally, my original training is that of, is that of a clinical neuropsychologist. And there's a lot of similarities between uh, clinical neuropsychology and cognitive behavioral therapy, mm. usually. And I initially came across Reed's and then Anthony's street epistemology videos on YouTube back in 2019 and immediately recognized the value of what they were doing. And really without reading anything more about it, which I, in retrospect, I probably should have at the time, <laughs> I just used their videos as a guide. And within a few weeks, I had created a podcast. It's called Being Reasonable, which is also now a YouTube channel. And I began inviting guests on to discuss their deeply held beliefs in this style of conversation. Nathan, what about you? Uh, hey, I'm out of Portland, Oregon. Pretty much the same deal here. I came across uh, Anthony and Reed's uh, videos uh, and Ty from Let's Chat. And once I saw several examples, I realized that anyone can do this. It's mm. really more simple than we make it out to be sometimes when we're talking about the nuance of how to do SE. Um, and once I realized it was actually quite simple, I just started applying it to my everyday conversations as an Uber and Lyft driver. Uh, I started having conversations with people at the bar, with people at parties. And before I knew it, I started getting a bit of a reputation around my friend circles uh, as a, somebody who was like uh, paying attention and able to listen and uh, getting people to reflect on their views and critically think. Um, and I just fell in love with the method after that. Um, my degree is in political science from University mm. of Oregon, and I recognize that um, it was a better way to be an advocate. So my channel is called Abstract Act Activist, um, and I'm basically going out uh, talking to people about whatever they want to talk about and then helping us to both reflect on their views in that way. That's so I really... Cool. I really like uh, SE in that way. I'm from Moscow, Russia. Uh, my name is Roman Tarasov, or Rome for short. And I just stumbled upon Anthony's videos in the early 2017 and got immediately hooked up by it. I, I was and am still an educator. Uh, so to me, it's mostly about 
basic critical thinking and scientific method applied to everyday situations, everyday communication. And it's just so cool, so effective. I, I want more people to learn about this. I'm excited. Um, yeah, I'm Reed Nicewonder. I'm an independent filmmaker living here in Los Angeles, California. And I also found Anthony's videos back in around 2015, early 2015. Got really involved in the SE community since then, practiced online for a while, started my own YouTube channel in 2016, and have been involved with it, very uh, involved with it a lot. And also I'm president of Street Epistemology uh, with Anthony for the nonprofit. What's the name of the channel? My YouTube channel is Cordial Curiosity. Anthony, for people that don't, uh, this is their first time to hear about this. Uh, and I'm sure this is the like the something you've done one million times. But if you could, please tell people who have no idea what we're talking about, what is street epistemology? All right. Okay. Well, street epistemology, I think, starts with the premise that we could represent our beliefs on a scale from one to ten or zero to one hundred, for example, to assess the quality of the reasons that we use to arrive at that level of confidence. And that these reasons either contribute to the confidence or they should deduct from it. That's one of the premises that we start with. The other idea I think is that, and this is the epistemology part of it, we're interested in how a person determined that the reasons that they give for thinking that something is true is a good reason. Take me through your process. Can I ask you questions to explore how you determine that you have a good reason for thinking that something is true to a high degree of confidence? The other thing that's really interesting about SE, and I think we're going to probably cover it here with specific examples talking about the vaccine and vaccine hesitancy and COVID, but what your listeners are and viewers are about to learn today are techniques that you can use for nearly any claim that anybody makes. So there's a there's a certain versatility to the to the tool set of SE that I think your viewers and listeners will really find useful. And this is largely about taking yourself out of it and making it about the person who's making the claim about reality and asking them if they're willing to explore their belief in a way that's a little bit different than they may be used to. I'm not here to debate you or argue with you or give you facts. I want to listen to you to understand how you became so convinced that what you think is true is true. This is moving at the speed that my conversation partner is comfortable with, explaining to them that I'm using a technique with them, getting informed consent, and then proceeding at a speed that they're comfortable with so that they can reflect on the steps that they use to be so sure that something is true. That essentially is street epistemology in a nutshell. It goes The rabbit hole goes very, very deep beyond that. But that's the tip of the iceberg. Things that I love about this, uh, I love that the, there's such a focus on confidence. You know, we I did a show about uh, Burton's research into what even is confidence, uh, the neuropsychology of confidence, what's happening in the brain at the level of neurons and emergent properties of networks weighting something in one direction or another, and that comes out as this like subjective experience of confidence or lack thereof. Um, also, like the things in there that are related to justification, explanation, um, rationalization, that often being what reasoning is in uh, the domains that I like traffic in as far as uh, the difference between reason logic and reasoning. Reasoning is com you know coming up with uh, plausible reasons for what you think, feel, and believe for the cons 
for the uh, purpose of it being consumed by the peers to which you feel like you have the, oh, the most social, uh, you, you could incur the most social cost or get the most social gain from like producing good reasons. Um, there's also elements in there of like, where do you determine trust? How do you decide whether or not what you're saying, what you're doing, feeling or thinking is coming from trustworthy sources? All this is, is rolled into it, incorporated into it. I know you know this, but I'm saying this for the purpose of, of people who are hearing it for the first time. What is the, what kind of, how does rapport building look uh, in an online environment versus a, a uh, one-on-one environment? Let's say I'm talking to, to, my, to a family member inside a, a safe home space versus I'm talking to somebody, a family member on uh, Facebook. Both of the, in both situations, this person's vaccine hesitant. How does it look? I get, first of all, you want to understand where you're at at this point. Maybe your rapport is already incredibly high with this person. Then you don't need to do a lot more than that. You can just ask questions and they will be openly answering them. But sometimes, in any case, you want to be just polite. You want to be genuine and uh, you you might want to obtain consent before proceeding if you want to proceed further down, deeper into this rabbit hole. So, yeah, just feel free to, uh, even if it's a close one, Feel free to ask a simple question. Do you mind if we talk about this uh, for, for a little while? Because I'm, I'm genuinely curious and I'm interested to understand how you think about this. Because first of all, we, we might want to find common ground. Chances are, however different their views are from your views, they also want what's best for the, for the people, for their closed ones. They also uh, want health for everyone and stuff like that so yeah find common ground and then you might after that uh, look for strategies of how to achieve that how to achieve your goals that that you have in common and if they are if you have a relationship with them and you've engaged with them in the past and you've used a more traditional style of engagement i'll just put it that way and now you're shifting gears and you're using the street epistemology stuff they will likely notice that you're doing something different and may perceive it to be manipulation or persuasion or something sneaky you're in, why are you asking me these questions you've never done this before so you may want to get ahead of that and explain in advance i'd like to try a different approach i know in the past we maybe have argued or or maybe we've gotten along swimmingly, no problem. But I want to try a different approach where I'm going to ask you some questions if you're cool with it. And you can look into it too. There's videos online and there's this whole body of literature out there. But are you okay if we discuss this issue in a slightly different way where I ask you some questions? Um, if you do that and you approach it from a genuine point of view and in an, in an effort to truly understand, not just necessarily push your own view. You can use it for that, by the way, but generally try to approach it from an open mindset, but warn people in advance that they may detect that there's something unusual about the approach because there is, this is a counterintuitive and unusual approach when you first encounter it. That's really good. Advice. I, That's good advice. Keep going. I would recommend to optimize your SE environment. The gold standard is in-person face-to-face alone with them alone. You know, next is, you know, we're here on zoom video chat. That's Okay. Um, voice is okay. Ideally not text at all. And definitely not publicly on Facebook or publicly on Twitter where everyone else is watching. Um, yeah, I would not recommend that. Right. Really you you try to try to frame it as let's work together. The two of us, ideally without any outside observers who we might be catering to, I want to truly understand how you 
became convinced that this is true. Don't give me reasons that you think will convince me or the people who might be watching. Let's have a dialogue. And I want to understand how you came to this conclusion or this high degree of confidence, for example, that this is true. I would assume that in the social media environment, that the reputation management kicks in so hard that that's, that's what, that's, I think that's what you're, you're uh, talking about, Reed, right? Like in yeah. that environment, that becomes a very high concern. It becomes very motivating for the way you're going to try to, to create messages back and forth or, or debate, argue, deliberate. Um, you're very aware that when I press enter, it's got to be something that, you know, you're almost like in a rap battle at that point, And you're like, you're trying to get the crowd to go, whoa, instead of you're going through a, a <laughs> an introspective uh, backwards chaining of your processing. Uh, am, am I kind of on the right path there? Totally. Yes. And be because we don't focus on the belief itself when we're doing SE, right? We're not really focused on the claim vaccines are harmful or vaccines are good, whatever the claim is. We acknowledge it. We want to understand it and be very clear about what the claim is and your degree of confidence that it's true and any words that maybe need to be defined and the meanings of things, but it's the reasons and methods. So that distances people from the ego, the ego related belief. So we recognize that people become defensive and they, they fall in love with their views and they want to fight and protect them to the very end. We acknowledge that and we take a, take a step back and say, let's, Let's explore how you got to this position. And that simple reframing tends to open people up and they, they become a lot more relaxed and trusting, which is what you both want. You want both parties to be in that mindset where let's take ourselves out of it. Let's take the belief and let's explore it together. That is what we try to do with SE. It's not easy to do, by the way. There's a lot of things that can get in the way of making that happen, but that's the goal. It's better to do this one-on-one -on -one if you can and it's better to do it one-on-one. If I'm, and just please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just telling you how I, how I hear it. Uh, it's better to do this one-on-one -on -one you can. It's even better to do it one-on-one -on -one without an audience, even an audience of like, if you're talking to your dad, you're, if your mom's listening in, that's already a knock against you, I'm assuming. Uh, it's be the, the more one-on-one -on -one you can make it, the better. And the more it can be an actual human interchange that plays up all of our primate psychology, the better. The, the farther out you get from that, the, the, the harder this is going to be to work. Am I hearing you correctly? I think so. I think one-on-one -on -one is better. And if it, if it arises organically, that's probably even better. So it's not somebody with a table or a, a, a camera around their, on their chest, you know, asking people to stop and surface a claim. But you're engaged in normal everyday activities and somebody makes a claim that you are suspicious about, you're curious about. Maybe you think they're flat wrong. Maybe you agree with them. But it's an opportunity to ask them if you can use this questioning technique to explore the belief with them at a pace that they're comfortable with. That's ideal. I, uh, I have your, your quick sheet over here of your phases. And uh, I would like to ask uh, each of you individually to talk about the phases. Ro uh, Roman already talked about building rapport. So I'm going to talk about that's phase one or step one. So step two is uh, identifying the claim. So I'm going to uh, make or not make, I'm going to politely ask Nathan, if you could help uh, every people who want to hear this in a stepwise manner, step, step one, build rapport, step two, identify the claim. What does that step entail? Well, it really just uh, entails, it will, we were talking about, uh, when to bring up SE. And if somebody is making an offhanded remark that doesn't really resonate with you, you can say, oh, that's really interesting. That strikes me as odd. I, I'm Now I'm curious about that. Can you um, tell me a bit more? Um, really put the ball in their court, have them explain what it is that they're meaning. And a, a great question to ask that I use almost every single time is, what do you mean by that? 
really just what what do you mean by that? What do you mean by these words? And get clarity on what it is that they're actually trying to say. Um, and that's really all that's entailed with um, getting the claim, making sure that you understand it in the same way that they do. And a big uh, thing that can help with that is by repeating back the claim in your own words uh, in such a way as they agree that you understand them. And as soon as they recognize that you understand them the way they understand themselves, uh, now you guys are off to a good start and you can start digging into the reasons. Okay, I dig this. And that sort of uh, pulls in step three too, which is confirming the claim. Uh, so did I understand you correctly? Uh, what do you mean by that? You know, Not just hearing the claim, but then repeating it back in a way that allows them to make sure that you have actually identified a particular claim or proposition. Uh, Anthony, uh, and I've heard you talk about this before, and I love the way you talk about it. Uh, step four is clarifying the definitions. What, what goes on in that, st in that step? Well, uh, sometimes we use words that we just assume that our conversation partner understands the meaning that we're using. And we've sort of realized early on that it's useful to ask people for their definition if there's any ambiguity whatsoever. Or you're wondering, when they say scam or or um, conspiracy, or some other word, it's good to ask them what they mean by it. And you may often be surprised. They may not even, uh, they may be even be a little bit caught off guard that you're even asking it because they just think it's so basic. But if there's any confusion or you think there might be confusion about the word that they're using, absolutely ask them in advance to, to lay it out. I like to write down the word or uh, the word and the definition that they're using. And I invite them to modify the definition of the word if they think it's necessary to do so as the conversation continues. It's interesting. Sometimes people will use multiple definitions of the same word throughout the course of a conversation. And if you want to talk about misunderstandings, that's a huge one. So that would be, that's one of the things that we advise people to do is to make sure that you're not talking past each other. Mm. And you can invite them to do the same too. So now if I say a word that you're confused about or you're wondering about, I hope that you'll do the same thing that I did and ask me to define it for you. What we try to do in SE though, is to use the definitions of words that our conversation partner is using, because they're the ones that have the view, the belief, and they've established a degree of confidence that it's true. We want to work within their belief model as much as possible throughout the duration of the exploration. And that means adopting the meanings of the words that they're using for that purpose. It doesn't mean I have to continue using their, the, those meanings of those words through the rest of my life, but for the duration of the conversation. Okay. So that's, uh, I, I did this with Simon Sinek recently. Uh, we, we got on the uh, phone to talk about a project we're working on and uh, I mentioned street epistemology to him and he was like, what's, and we, <laughs> when I was got to the part about clarifying definitions, I said, uh, uh, Politics, you know, is a good point, a good example, and because he was having, he was having a, he was asking for uh, advice as for someone he was having a political debate with, and uh, I said, you know, and we got to the part of clarifying definitions. I was like, you should clarify what that person even means by politics, and it was like, how could that even be a thing? I was like, well, for some people, politics is like, you know, my my local, you know, people coming to consensus, and and uh, and uh, there, it's uh, your representatives debating and, and uh, coming to compromise and stuff like that. Other people, politics are a bunch of people in a dark room and in a bunker somewhere d dividing up, you know, the resources of the world and determining who's going to, you know, run the, uh, the secret cabal that decides 
what poisons goes into your food, right? Like politics is, it means different things to different people. And, and if you identify very early on that that's how they're defining politics, that changes the whole course of the conversation. Uh, so I, I dig this part. This For me, this step was huge because I had not put it into anything that I was doing. I was I never clarified mm. terms. I just rolled right past that to try to get some sort of psychology stuff. And I found that sometimes 80% of the conversation is right there in the, oh, we weren't even using the same words. We're not even talking yeah. about the same thing. Like I'm I've making had huge people, assumptions. It's not uncommon. Well, it's, it's a little uncommon, but it's not impossible for somebody to simply answer the question about what they mean by that word and notice that they're altering their self-reported degree of confidence that it's true. I've actually had this happen where somebody was, they were defining Mm -hmm. karma because I think he said he was hundred percent sure that karma was real. And in the process of defining it, he suddenly stopped and said, I guess, I don't think that that's true. (laughs) Now that's rare, but it shows how useful definitions can be. I do that all the time, by the way, I'll, I'll start a, I'll, I like uh, one of my, uh, like, uh, like, uh, new measures of adulthood is when I start to type something out on Twitter or Facebook and then halfway through, I go, that's <laughs> stupid. Like, I, I don't believe that at all. Yeah, or, or, or that's half uh, the uh, tweets I read. <laughs> <laughs> that's me, but that's me doing that where I'm like defining it for myself. I'm articulating it to myself and I'm building up my argument. And then I realize my argument sucks and I need to think, rethink it. Which is kind of yeah. neat. Like a lot of SE seems to be like getting a, the other person to do that live in front of you, maybe for the first time they've ever done it. And, you know, you often realize, Ugh, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> what you're talking about is epistemic responsibility and humility, right? And like this idea of if I put this tweet out, what will my friends think of it? Or what's the first question somebody who's into SE would ask me about the very tweet that I made? It humbles you. And I probably have sent a lot less tweets now. <laughs> in my life after having learned this approach. So it, 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 you're less likely to walk. Oh, I, I, my kids laugh at me because they're like, you're still writing that tweet. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's the perfect tweet. Just go away. I'm still writing it. Start. So build rapport, identify the claim, confirm the claim, clarify your definition. So step five is identify a confidence level. Yes. Reed, I'm going to ask you to tell me what that means. What do you mean identify a confidence level? How do I do that in front of a person without it being weird? Yeah, this is something that kind of tips off people. They're in a Nessie conversation. If someone asks them this question, it is basically just asking on, say, on a scale from zero to 100, how confident are you that this claim is actually true and real and actually is the case? Simple as that. They don't have to do zero to 100. They don't have to do uh, you know, a certain specific scale ask them whatever scale is comfortable for them uh mark does like one to seven like the what is it like art scale is that what it's Likert called scale. Mm. yeah one to ten just some kind of scale you can i've even use. seen people use words read like i'm really really mm-hmm. sure that this is true or like I, I have a lot of doubt so you can go with words or numbers it doesn't matter yeah what's important about that to me is that uh i spent a lot of time with robert burton because when i was writing a book about this stuff, I wanted to, I devoted a lot of material to confidence and cause he was, ex- his book is very exciting about, um, talking about confidence as an emergent property of, of neurons and weighted systems doing their thing. And you feel it bodily and viscerally and that it happens to you. That was the big thing that made me excited. was like, it, confidence happens to you. No different than the, when you bump your toe, the pain happens to you. Or when you get hungry, hunger happens to you. It's like, this is something you're noticing within your organism and then you're trying to articulate it in some way. And we often articulate it as I am very confident or I am somewhat doubtful 
or, but you can quantify it too. Like if it, if for zero to 10, 10 to 20, there's a, there are certain words we use to express what that feels like and so on. Um, but oftentimes we just feel it and it feels since, it, since we feel it, it's unquestionable. It's something that we, I feel confident. I mean, this, therefore I'm, it is, but then you what I like about SE is, okay, we've identified your confidence level. What's driving that feeling. And the idea that something could be driving this feeling you're having, which we call confidence, uh, is really illuminating. And for people who I've talked about this with, who've never heard of any of that stuff, that's the part that oftentimes excites them is like, I'd never even thought about confidence being something that's, you know, being generated by my body the same way hunger would be generated by my body or anger would be generated by my body. There might be a little, there might be a little controversy about the confidence. Like, is it really a true representation of where the person stands? Is this a really well thought out thing? Is this just sort of a gut number that somebody just regurgitated because you, they, they didn't know, they didn't really give it much thought. Um, right. Like how confident are we that this person's really an 80? Maybe there's right. some other number. And, and <laughs> if, we, them. if we notice an adjustment later, let's say they drop from an 80 to a 60 or go from an 80 to a 90, were they always at the second number? And we've just cleared the, the, the brush out of the way for them to see that they were at a 90 or at a 60. This might be something to add just real quick. We're spending a lot of time on the confidence scale, but it's probably important is that the confidence scale serves as a guide for your conversation partner to, to get a sense of where they at and what's driving it. Now it's useful for us as the questioner, because it might help us figure out, well, do, do I need to ask a really tough question here? Or can I maybe ask a light one? Maybe, I don't know. That's a, that's, this is, I like where you're going with this because uh, I get stuck doing this too, where I start, I know it's supposed to be about them, but I start really making it about like how about me. Right. Uh, you can't uh, do that. You try not to say like, well, I need to ask questions to get them to move up in their level of confidence that vaccines are safe, or I need to move them down in their confidence that that uh, mask usage is, is a bad idea yeah. or something like that. Yeah, another clue about if people give you a number, say 100, and, they, and you clarify with them by asking, does that mean you could not be mistaken about it? I take that as a clue that this is a type of belief that is potentially close to their identity, something that will be very kind of potentially emotional if you start pushing too hard too quickly. So depending on where people are at on their scale, that's where you can gauge where you should be going in the conversation. If someone's like it out of 50, this might be just something they haven't thought about too much, or they're just, this is a more intellectual type of belief, not something emotional yeah. or identity driven. Right. It may, that's it may so also important. Have, okay. Figure, figure out where, like, if they say, I couldn't be mistaken about this, they might identify with this uh, movement, like as a political movement or as a social movement. And it's, if it's a part of their identity and who they are, um, it might open up an opportunity to ask how they would go about their lives if they were on the other side of things, if they thought differently about things. Um, just to kind of wonder what it would be like to think differently about the idea, uh, especially if it's their first time uh, entertaining doubt about the idea in a long while. And maybe this person who is uh, against vaccines, they live in a community of people who are against vaccines. And all of a sudden, if they were pro-vaccine, they would have to move, get a new job. I mean, who knows, mm -hmm. really? I mean, they'd have to change their social circle. I mean, there, there would, there's a lot more than just changing the belief itself. I want to move to step uh, six, which is the, you know, we're getting into the real, the meat and potatoes here. The Identify the method used to arrive at the confidence level. Mark, with your fast scientific uh, background, uh, what are we talking about here? Well, this is really a, an essential part of an SE conversation. I mean, you're really trying to find out how they've determined that their belief 
is true and or how they've arrived at their stated confidence level of, that their belief is true. Um, and they may provide more than one reason, but during an SC conversation, it's really important to try to focus down on that one reason, maybe two, why they believe what they believe and what really adds to the confidence level of that, the, to their belief that they stated. Hmm. And it's really important because so many times we can have these conversations and we're talking about the wrong thing. We think that the reason why they have the belief is one reason, but they actually have another reason. And if you don't really find out that reason and really understand it, why they believe the belief, it, it, it it's going to really not get you very far. Um, so we really want people to understand why they believe what they believe and they want, and we want them to explain it to, to us. And so we can understand why they believe what they believe. Well, this is the, this is really the trickiest part of it. Cause like, uh, I know this is like Socratic methody stuff and, and I try to pull back from that when I'm explaining this to people talking about technique rebuttal versus topic rebuttal. And there are a lot of different kinds of technique rebuttal and SE and Socratic method are all within the category of technique rebuttal. Uh, technique rebuttal being trying to get a, looking at a person's, how do they, how are they processing the information and coming to their conclusions versus just debating the conclusions themselves with your own conclusions and saying, which facts are the better facts, which is a topic rebuttal technique. That's okay to do in a, in a, um, good faith environment where everybody's playing by the same rules and are, and are subject to the same social costs and rewards, which would be uh, a scientific silo or, uh, maybe even a legal framework or places where the rules are set and we're playing by the same rules. When you're, when you meet a person one-on-one, we don't know what the good faith even is in this situation. And part of SE is sort of determining that the, the, so when it comes to, uh, you have to use technique rebuttal in this place like that, I feel. Um, but this is the part that's really interesting because, uh, you're asking a person, what method are they using to arrive at their, at their confidence level? And the word method in that, let me bounce it to another person. Roman, when I say, when I say the word method in this step, what do you mean method? I think I can feel a person I'm talking to. I say, what method are you using to arrive at your confidence level? Of course, I don't think I would say it in, in that sentence that way. But Yeah, yeah. I also was going to say that I don't recommend asking that specific question to a person. Mm -hmm. What method are you using? It's, it's mostly for us. So yeah, as we said, we have a, a belief or a claim, if you will. We have a confidence scale which i like how you david described it as a feeling we just want to understand where they they are at when they're thinking about it and then as mark described we have identified the basis of their belief what they think is the most important way or most important ways that bring them to this conclusion to this specific conclusion so now what we want to what we want to focus on is on those ways on themselves even regardless of the claim itself. So just forget for a minute the claim, the belief itself, and think of those ways how they got there. What methods, so you can say they were, what reasons they were using, but also you can think of methods as uh, thinking of how they think in order to determine whether those reasons are substantial enough, how they can compare them between each other, you might think. of. So they can say, I believe it for this reason, for that reason, but uh, why do they believe those reasons are important is what you might uh, think of as methods. Basically, it's uh, examining those 
those ways to come into conclusion and comparing them against maybe more reliable ways to to come to conclusions and uh, hopefully coming to more reliable ways. Hmm. Um, Mark, I want to pop back over to you again because this is we're in deep psychology stuff when we get into this area. And uh, the next step is to, is to ask questions that will reveal the reliability of the method. So you may have sussed out sort of kind of, okay, I think I know what's, how this person is possibly what is what are the mechanics they're using to get to their stated confidence level or their, maybe their, just the confidence level, whether or not it's been stated. Now you ask questions that help them understand whether or not that's a reliable way of reaching this level of confidence. What, what would you do in that? I mean, how does that work if for someone who's like uh, seeing this for the first time is like, Oh, that's a lot of words that I have to remember. <laughs> like, what would you, what do you do now? Well, people believe things for different reasons. I mean, sometimes people will believe a belief, like let's say with, we're talking about vaccines and let's say someone might believe it because they read, they read scientific articles on vaccines and they've come to their conclusion about vaccines. But some people have a different way, a different method of believing or not believing in vaccines. And maybe it's personal experience. Maybe they've had a neighbor who got the vaccine and they got sick. And so that's their method. That's their, they consider that a reliable way to come to a conclusion. And our questions are designed to flesh that out. Is the scientific way or is it, you know, what happened to your neighbor? Is that a reliable way to know whether your belief is true? And, and sticking with you, Mark, like, like I can feel my like hypothetical in my mind of doing this, like feeling like, oh, do you think that's a reliable way of looking at something? <laughs> I can feel that reactionary, like, oh, you read, you read this on, on, uh, on Reddit, on, on, the, on the QAnon Reddit page. That, do you think that's a reliable place to find your information? I can feel myself be getting pissy about it. And um, how do I keep this on their side? How do I, how do I get, keep, get it so that they are examining the, the, or, and feeling, hmm, is this a reliable way of looking at something, a reliable source or a trustworthy place? Yeah, I mean, I think usually about this, t- this time in the conversation, you've had a long conversation with them and you've established a good rapport and they see this as a collaborative effort that, and, and, and that's, I really try to see it that way. If, if, if I'm looking at vaccines incorrectly, I really would like to know it and I would like to, maybe we could kind of go on this journey together to find out is uh, your uh, way you're looking at this. Is this a reliable way to know what is true, whether this belief is true or, or uh, I just want to know if what you are saying would reflect what is true about the reality of the world and Mm -hmm. what can we do to discover that together? How do I work that in the conversation when I realize that they have sort of revealed they're getting a lot of their information from questionable sources? So if someone says, I read it at this website, you could just go down a little bit in the rabbit hole and saying, okay, um, that's interesting. What did the website say? And what is the source of wherever they're getting their information? Is that person reliable? What did they do to get that information? If it said something else, would you be at a different confidence level? Or if you found that reason to be to your satisfaction, not a good reason, would you be at a different confidence level? This is a way of kind of checking if whatever reason they're giving you is actually the real reason. And you don't want to like stick on something that is not something that is actually contributing to their confidence. That's good. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it's like, a, how 
pull back again into how are they sorting out that no matter where they're getting the information, how are they sorting out whether or not that's a good source or a good reason to have high confidence? Like keep pulling it back to how they're, they're uh, judging anything that's going into their, their, their mind when it comes related to the, whatever it is, the issue that we're talking about at the moment. We use yeah. something called the outsider test also where we might I say, I was about like, to say that <laughs> you want to go for it. Nathan, go for it. Yeah. What's the outside? Well, I was test? just going to say, once the out, once you go through the unread library effect um, with them in the way that Reed just brought up, that might be a good opportunity to then bring up an outsider test um, after the afterwards, um, which is basically just taking the reasons that they're using and apply that to some hypothetical and or imaginary third party that's not you or them. It's some imaginary other person. Now, it could be a true story, too. <laughs> you could pull up a true story if you wanted but the idea is to see whether or not if someone's using the same method or reasons to come to some other conclusion, whether or not uh, that's a reliable way to reach that conclusion if the conclusion were different. So if we use the same reasons to reach some other conclusion, would we want to find ourselves with this third party? And if the answer is no, that's quite revealing about the method that they used. Give me a, if the answer like a, is yes. a palpable example. Like, 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 uh, what would be an example? We got that website, that? like that website example. Let's say we walked across the street together and we talked to another neighbor who revealed that they came to a different conclusion about vaccines ah, okay. because they went to another website. Okay. How could, how could a neutral observer looking at the two neighbors figure out which of the two of you is actually justified in your confidence in the truth of your conclusion? If you're both using the same method, how could we discern the difference between the two? How? That's method. That's way. That's step. That's epistemology. That's it right there. That's a, a, a lot of the advice everyone is given in this particular conversation. These, this, the outsider test and, and other things. I like the, you know, okay. Well, if you, if this, you've all mentioned something related to. If this source says this and this source says this and they're in conflict, how do, you, how would you determine which one is the one to go with? Uh, that's. Are, that's really a great way to to pull back. I think that's really clever and good and, and tested a lot through your, your method. And there's another variation of that I keep seeing, which is like, well, what if this other person said uh, they trust this source and this person says they trust this other source? How would I determine which one of the, these two people if I was looking at it from the outside? Um, that seems very useful uh, uh, in this very particular topic, it seems to me. So I really appreciate that. That's a real gift uh, in a, when it comes to having better conversations and trying to and, and examining your own beliefs in something. Because I, I often, when I think about this, I think, well, how come I, why do I trust Dr. Fauci? <laughs> why, do, why do I trust it? What am I basing that on? What does it say about me? That and that's I'm a saying? real, that's a real benefit of doing this method is the more you start practicing it with other people, the more you'll start to really critically evaluate your own ideas. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I dig this. And Anthony, I, I've talked to you about this a lot. Like um, this community, when I first uh, met, you and everyone like watching the evolution of the community has been absolutely fascinating from my perspective. Uh, the, uh, as the years that go by, everyone that I've met within this community gets more and more, um, sage like and more, everybody gets more and more grounded because everyone is, is getting more, everyone I've met that does this over and over again, there's a feedback that you're getting that's making you more and more, uh, okay with questioning your own uh, perspective, your own subjective reality. And every 
human, every silo that's ever been devoted to that, you can tell when somebody's been doing it a long time because they start becoming unflappable. They start becoming, uh, a, they start becoming the kind of the person you, you truly want to hang with. You, that's the person you want to eat mushrooms with. That, that, the person, the person <laughs> who is most unflappable, but you can't just, you can't just get there. Like you, like uh, it takes years of devotion to being willing to give up that which is not worth keeping with inside your subjective reality or the way that you parse subject reality. And there's many different methods that, uh, that's the output of it. That's the downstream result of, of being committed to, to, to that like uh, way of looking at yourself and the world around you. And I never, I don't guess I ever really expected it when I first met you that like, SE would also become one of these types of silos where, because it's, it's in having these kinds of conversations that you're talking about, Reed, uh, it's in having this kind of commitment to your own, uh, to looking at yourself that you were talking about, Nathan, that, that, I mean, it has, to, I mean, if you really are honestly doing it, that it has to be what happens to you. Otherwise, um, you probably do have some sort of, uh, bias and nefarious intent behind it and and the se just burns that out it sorts itself out that way if you if that's your if that's your reason for approaching it you, you will never be a good practitioner of it because you're not willing to be open yourself i just find that very fascinating as an outside observer of all that i've seen that what i can tell when somebody's been doing se a long time because because there's there seems to be a certain groundedness and unflappableness to that person that comes out of it and it's really compelling so uh that's really cool, Anthony. I don't know. I just wanted to make sure you had heard that. I'm glad that you picked up on that because that's been my experience too. And that was something that I never expected when I got un- got into SE. I thought I'll learn this tool and I'll challenge all these people about their views and maybe help them take another look at their confidence and maybe they'll do some sort of, sort of self-adjustment and then I'll move on my, you know, go my merry way. But I didn't realize that how much it would change me and how it changes typically the practitioners. You tend to be a little bit more humble about what you can claim to know, like we talked about with the tweets that we make. We're a little bit more responsible about the things we write and say. And I think, speaking for myself, I'm a little bit more, well, I'm a lot more accepting of other people's views because I can make a distinction now between the person and the belief. Mm. And people are just holding beliefs. And we're exploring how they determine that that belief is true to a high degree of confidence. So. Once you start seeing beliefs as separate from people, it really helps in your own personal growth. After hearing that discussion, I thought you might like to hear a real SE conversation with a vaccine-hesitant person. So I got Mark's permission. He runs Being Reasonable, the podcast and the YouTube channel. I got his permission to play this audio from a recent conversation he had at an anti-vaccine rally in Hillsborough, North Carolina. After this, just credits. So enjoy the final, final, final part of this program. The primary reason why you have the belief, what would that be? Okay. My primary reason for being here to support the not mandating the vaccine for the teenagers in athletics, basically. I mean, that's really where it's it's around for me right now because my son's in the football program, high school. Yeah. He loves football. Yeah. If they mandate this, he's already decided for himself. He's not 
doing it, and I'm in full support of that. Yeah. And he'll have to quit football in his high school year, his senior year. So if they mandate the belief, I, don't, I mean, sorry, mandate the vaccine, yeah. that your your son will not take it. He will now not have one of his favorite sport, his favorite extracurricular activity in his senior year of high school, which yeah. I think they're actually robbing that from these kids if they don't, if they want a choice or if their parents want a choice. And so is that, that's your belief too? Because I know we're talking about your son's belief. Yes. I have not gotten the vaccine. Neither has my husband. We, um, we believe that it's just too early as far as that goes. So um, if I, if I was to encapsulate a belief that we could discuss is that you're not for the vaccine for the Delta variant or for COVID in general, because it's just too new a vaccine. I'm not for it being mandated because it's too new, right? Not, there are, not for it being mandated because it's yes, too new. I have friends and family who have it, um, and I'm all in support of them having it yeah. as well. Um, let's say on a scale from one to seven, mm -hmm. how confident are you that this belief that you have is true? A seven, because I mean, obviously it's my belief, so of course, but, yeah. um, but I, I just believe all of the other vaccines that we've had mandated in this country have been researched and had many, many years of being available to people before it was mandated. So I was about to ask you that. What's the primary reason why you believe that this vaccine shouldn't be mandated for teenagers and Mostly sports? because there hasn't been enough uh, time for, for, it's not FDA approved, there hasn't been enough time for you to know the long-term effects on young people first and foremost. Right. And we're talking about time. What, what are we? What are, what are you looking for to see? Like, what is it that you want to see, like in studies, and, and that we haven't seen yet? What is it that you're looking for that make you feel more well, comfortable taking? First, uh, the effectiveness that you can't share. I mean, I would think the school wants this vaccine because they don't want the kids giving COVID to each other. But it's already being shown that people that are vaccinated are giving it to each other. So, if that's if that's what they're trying to stop, the vaccine isn't the way to do it. Okay. So I'm just trying to understand the primary reason why you believe the belief. Mm -hmm. And if I were to ask, what is the primary reason why you believe that the vaccine shouldn't be mandated? Uh, oh, okay. So yeah. it's too new. There's too not new. enough data. What I'm saying when I say that is its effectiveness against preventing getting it or preventing harsh symptoms from it. Um, and side effects, long-term effects. So it's too new, it doesn't work, you're saying, and there's, or it doesn't work like they say. Mostly long-term effects inside, for and the young people. Right? Side effects for the vaccine right. for the wrong people. Whether it's uh, heart problems, fertility issues, um, other issues that are happening because it's a different type of yeah. vaccine than all the others. Now, in the same breath, we've gotten the flu vaccine as far back as I can remember because I have a child who has right. asthma. Um, all my kids were up to date on their vaccinations for school. I'm not yeah. against vaccinations in general. So the main reason why you believe the belief then is that it's happening, that the testing that they're doing, it's, are you saying that they haven't done all the testing they need to do or it's being done in a, in a compressed amount of time? They have enough time to get the, the, the right data yeah. right, to, to show whether or not it's going to have long-term effects, if I it's going to work, and on top of all of that, uh, what are we at? Ninety-eight and a half percent survivability, especially when it comes to kids. It's even higher. If they were, I'm just hypothetically speaking, yeah. I'm not saying this is the case, but if they were, the FDA, let's say, were able to do a lot of amount of a lot of testing in a short amount of time, and mm -hmm. and they were able to to do the kind of testing that 
and you would look at that testing and you say, yeah, that's sufficient yeah, like, for what so I think you, they should do. Are you asking, like, in a year from now, if, if they had more information? Then yeah, if, they, if, like, or even hypothetically next week, if they were able to just right. magically do all the testing they need to do as they do for other vaccines, yeah. would you reduce your confidence in your belief at that point? No, because... I think there has to be a minimum amount of time for the vaccine to be released to the public before. So it's time? Yes, it's time. And, and I'm not talking 10 years, 30 years, like some of the other vaccines have taken us. And what is it specifically about time, and this helps me, what is it specifically about time that, that would help you become more confident that the vaccine is... So, okay, I have, like I said, several neighbors and friends yeah. who have the vaccine, have gotten the vaccine. Yeah. So, regardless of what I can find on the CDC's website or what I can find on Google, um, through my own personal experience, I can make a decision whether or not I think it's safe in the long run. Whether it's worth yeah. the chances of some of the nightmare stories we've heard about the vaccine, which I don't believe happens okay. to everyone. So, I, I'm hearing two reasons for the belief right now. I just want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. One is there's not enough time mm -hmm. and I was asking about what is it specifically about time that what it was it giving you that you'd like to see but also it seems like you haven't had enough maybe personal experience with the vaccine I'm, I'm letting my personal experience help my decision let's put it yeah and I haven't had any bad personal experience. Oh. So that's actually helping the number from seven come down to, you know, to yeah. a lower number. At the yeah. longer my friends and family have had the vaccine, have not gotten COVID, they're they're not in the hospital, they don't have some third arm growing, you know. Right, right. As long as that the longer that happens, the more confident I am in the vaccine. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. In that situation, what would what kind of information would you trust more? looking at your friends and family and seeing how they respond to the vaccine or seeing scientific data. I don't trust anything on the internet or the data anymore. So no scientific information then, you're saying? If there's, no, now if there's a study done and the numbers are released, it's a public information where I knew all of the study, because I know, you know very well you can take numbers and change them to be what you want them to be, percentages you want them to be, you know, with learned that through the years with my career so I know that just seeing percentages isn't isn't an answer. So are you saying that in this case your your trust level goes to personal experience of people you know who've had taken yeah. who've taken the vaccine or not taken the vaccine. And scientific studies that are open and in public science of, of those sense. two kinds of information of knowing things you know, mm -hmm. what would be more important to you do you think? That's a good question. I don't know if I can answer that. Yeah. Um, because, like, right, like I said, right now, if I went with coworkers and friends and, and neighbors, yeah, there's no issue with the vaccine. Right. So that's you haven't had direct experience about a nev negative, correct, uh, response to the vaccine, but it's something about the data that you're not liking. Yes. So I, it might even be the data that I don't trust as much as I trust. And when we say the data. What we mean is that there's just not been enough time. Uh, information on the news, information in articles, information in social media, it's all over the place. And I know um, that brings up the whole um, misinformation that is, is being labeled. That's a, I mean, that's a great question. And yeah. how, do we, how do we get through that? What do we, how do we decide what's misinformation and what seems to be more accurate information? What do we, 
how do you decide? It'll it'll have to be from a time where what's being said as as misinformation is proven completely wrong. Not that there's a little bit of data this way and a little bit of data that way. There's, it needs to be a large percentage in in one way or another. So, if there's some information that you're believing and if it's proven com completely wrong, then you would change your view on that. You're saying. Yeah. So, is it? Is this making me think about like things like okay, say there's. 100 people get the vaccine and yeah. 10 have serious side effects, uh, death even. Right. And 100 people get COVID, but only two people have died. COVID. Like, that also comes into play, being great. How serious um, right. the, the effect is percentage-wise on those two sets of Yeah, no, I see where you're coming from. And when it says, like, we're thinking about the information and that, that information, whatever that information you're relying on, would need to be proven completely wrong. It seems like a, to me, in my mind, when I hear that, it seems like a pretty high hurdle. <laughs> proven completely wrong, I, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of okay, in my so life what's been proven, proven completely, completely wrong with me. Wrong, like, okay, so um, even with the flu vaccine, yeah. there are a few people that had negative side effects. Right. There are kids that they say had certain um, conditions after they got the vaccine. Right. It was minimal enough yeah. to not think that's going to be a common occurrence. Right. So I'm not saying proven that it never happens. Right. I'm saying um, percentage-wise, it has to be like like that vaccine, like the flu vaccine, where majority of people just get a sore arm for a day or two, and then they don't get the flu. And if if the FDA was able to do that to your satisfaction and in a short amount of shorter amount of time than usual, would you reduce your confidence level in the belief, and would you? then think that maybe some level of yeah, if, mandate would be acceptable? Uh, I'm not going to put out a, a complete no on this vaccine forever. I just am right now. Yeah. Like between the time, between the, num the information I see on both sides and between um, feeling forced. It feels yeah. uh, way too much pressure and then you start thinking about all the money somebody's making for these vaccines. Right. You know, okay, we went through everybody in their 50s that'll get it. Now we got to head to those teenagers. It's like, hold on. Just hold now, if I, if I were to re-ask you the same question, the primary reason why you believe the belief, would you give me the same response at the time, or would you give me a different response? Yeah, it would be the same thing, time and experience with, with the actual I'm open to it. Yeah. And if they were magically able to compress that amount of time in a shorter amount of time, oh. you would reduce your confidence, maybe. In the I don't know how they could do that. Because Just hypothetical. I mean, yeah. I, mean yeah. I don't know how you can take, you know, a six-month trial or a one-year trial and turn it into a three-month trial. I don't know. Well, right. And so I think that's a great point. And someone actually put, gave me a great analogy about that. Is that let's say it takes a certain amount of time to write a book, right? right? And let's say. No matter how hard you try, it typically takes one person a certain amount of time to write that book. And what if we had a thousand people writing that book or a million people writing that book and we could write that book overnight instead of a year? And if that book was written well to your satisfaction, would you understand for your for yourself that that would be yes. an okay way to do something? Or? Yeah. yeah. Cool. But again, it's not an, 
not putting something into my teenage son. So, you know, I have a, I have to be protective as a as a parent here too. So yeah. So I don't know. I think we're into a, a little bit of a struggle. I don't think it'll ever be a hundred percent. Right. I think some of the people you see here today, in a year or two years, they yeah. might be willing to get the vaccine. Right. We got to give them some time and give them some space. Yeah. Wow, I really appreciate that conversation. So thank you for being so honest and open, and I just really appreciate that. That's very nice. It was a great talk. Thank you. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping people can do. They see way too much of the evil and the hate and the name calling. Yeah. It's not. I agree with you. I this think is not to, from what we're doing now, like the power of conversation, just yeah. people talking, yeah. I think we can maybe get somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Go yeah. Go. Thanks. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, to all the people we talked to, head to youarenotsosmart.com for all the past episodes. Go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. To support this show, the best thing you can do, the thing that I would love for you to do is just tell other people about it. Just tell somebody, hey, I got something out of this episode. You might enjoy it too. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at NotSmartBlog. Also on Facebook at slash you are not so smart. About half a million people there. And if you would like to really support the show, this is a one-person operation. So to help make it better, to help pay for transcription and other features, you can go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you get posters, t-shirts, sign books, and other stuff. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. Check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home.